Well, this will be our first outreach from 2018, and we're very uh, blessed and happy to be here in Edinburgh for the next uh, five days. The plan will be to go to Glasgow, Stirling, Dundee and Perth. If we do just some of those towns, it'll be a great achievement. But like every outreach that we do, and this may be number eight, number nine, maybe number ten, I don't know. Need to have a count up. Uh, every outreach we do, we always aim to have a reading or two from the Word of God. And what I want to try and do over the next uh, four mornings, we have five clear days, is profile Judas Iscariot. If you ever watch or if you've ever seen the most famous biblical movies like King of Kings, uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Ben-Hur, Judas Iscariot gets a lot of airtime, as they say. He's very prevalent in such movies. I think King of Kings, which came out in 1961, gives him a huge part, which isn't actually scriptural. It may be of interest uh, to those sitting around this table this morning that when it comes to people in the scripture, people that actually spoke, uh, Judas Iscariot is one of the least uh, vocal people in the Word of God. Mary, just for the record, is mentioned 41 times, directly and indirectly. But Judas Iscariot, if you watch King and Kings, gets a big part. And you would think that he is just as important as Jesus, which of course he's not. Peter, John, and later Paul. But of course Hollywood are not uh, Bible believers, and therefore they want to elevate the infamous man, Judas Iscariot. I caught an interview a couple of years ago, I think it was Ben Kingsley, a famous British actor, and he's made a lot of movies in Hollywood over the years, and he said this, he said, the best parts are always the bad parts. And I thought that's possible. And yet when I was growing up, I always liked the good parts. I liked Superman and Batman. But uh, Kingsley, a very famous uh, British actor, like I say, made the statement that the best parts are the bad parts. You know, the baddies are the best parts to play. And the Brits always play the baddies, and the Americans play the goodies. I think it was during the Ben-Hur movie, the Roman soldiers were played by the Brits, and uh, Judah Ben-Hur was played by the American uh, Charlton Heston. So the Americans play the goodies, and the Brits uh, play the baddies. But what I want to try and do over the next few mornings, and this will be somewhat ambitious, is to, first of all, profile Judas Iscariot, look at suicide, because, of course, Judas was a suicider, if there's such a word, he was suicidal, and look at some of the problems that we have in the UK at the moment. I want to say a few things. Number one, that if you are a man living in the UK, you are four times more likely to kill yourself than a woman. Every two hours, a man in the UK takes his own life. That's 84 every week. So men are four times more likely to kill themselves than women. And yet, if you listen to women, it could be uh, Theresa May, it could be uh, Melania Trump, it could be any feminist anywhere in the world, you would think that women are greatly underrepresented, uh, treated very poorly, are second-class citizens, and yet, if the truth were known, prostate cancer is still underfunded in the UK, whereas cervical cancer is overly funded. So women are more represented in the UK. They are taken care of more from a medical perspective compared to men. And like I say, if you are a man in the UK, there's a four times, or you are four times more likely to take your own life than a woman. Men of all ages in the UK, and I'll discuss uh, more about figures and stats over the next four mornings. But as a man, as a white, 
Protestant, heterosexual male, I want to discuss these subjects because women, I think, are represented. We have a female prime minister. We have a female queen. We have a female first minister in Scotland, where we are currently at the moment. There's a female first minister in Northern Ireland, and there are women all over the UK that are well represented. In fact, this morning news broke that the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party in Scotland, let me get this right, a lesbian in a civil marriage is now pregnant with her partner. So Scottish Conservative lesbian leader, a bit of a mouthful, excuse me, is expecting her firstborn with her female uh, partner. But that's how it goes. As we say, it's their time. Let's start, if we may, and let's attempt, if we may, to profile Judas Iscariot from Psalm 41. And when it comes to the subject of traitors, treachery or betrayal, the most infamous traitor would be the devil. Of course, he would fall. He would rebel against the Lord. And according to the book of Revelation, a third of the angels would follow him. After the devil, it has got to be Judas Iscariot. And whether you're saved or unsaved, you know who Judas is. He's referred to, like I say, in biblical movies and even secular movies. There are at least four Old Testament references to Judas Iscariot. And I want to attempt to look at all four over the next four mornings. Psalm 41, Psalm 41, look at verse 1, please. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he shall be blessed upon the earth. And thou wilt not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. I said, Lord, be merciful unto me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Mine enemies speak evil of me. When shall he die, and his name perish? And if he come to see me, he speaketh vanity. His heart gathereth iniquity to itself. When he goeth abroad, he telleth it. All that hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease say they cleaveth fast unto him. And now that he lieth, he shall rise up no more. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me, and raise me up, that I may requite them. By this I know that thou favourest me, because mine enemy doth not triumph over me. And as for me, thou upholdest me in mine integrity, and settest me before thy face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen. So David first and foremost, is in the context. But behind David is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil is addressed many times in the Old Testament. Behind the devil in the New Testament is the Antichrist. Or turn it around, in the New Testament, the Lord speaks to the Antichrist, but behind the Antichrist is the devil. And here from Psalm 41, the famous uh, text from verse 9, Yea, mine own familiar friend, Judas, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me, going back to Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, and also from the Gospel of John, this analogy is repeated, how uh, the devil has bruised the uh, heel of the Saviour, and also Paul picks up the analogy from uh, Romans, how 
the Son of God will one day crush the head of the serpent. Go to Psalm 69. So Judas Iscariot is mentioned four times directly in the Old Testament and many more times indirectly. When it comes to traitors, the devil is number one, Judas is number two, and Christendom is number three. In the House of Lords, uh, we have 26 bishops, and these bishops in the House of Lords meet two, three times a week. Every time they attend the House of Lords, they get paid £300. They sit on the side of the government, with the government benches, and a few weeks ago there was a guy called uh, Lord Pearson, and uh, Lord Pearson was being interviewed by Tommy Robinson, a well-known, unsaved Englishman, but a patriot, so respect where it is due. And Robinson, real name, I think Stephen Lennox, was uh, speaking to Lord Pearson. And Pearson is an unsaved man, but he's a brave man. And he said this, he said, we've had many discussions in the House of Lords over the years. And he said, you will be surprised to know, Tommy, that there are 26 bishops, Anglican bishops in the House of Lords. And these good old gentlemen uh, are very powerful. Sometimes they have the casting vote. If there's a tight vote in the Lords, uh, the bishops will vote with the government. This goes back to King James. And one of our goals for the next few days will be to film material concerning King James, uh, feeding into my article on King James. But James would unite the UK the four parts of the UK, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England, to become one, and he came up with the term Great Britain. And one of the first things King James did was to put bishops into the House of Lords. And these good old gentlemen, every time a discussion comes up in the House of Lords concerning Sharia law, concerning Islam, concerning FGM, these good old gentlemen abstain. They are silent. And they are traitors, as far as I am concerned. And you say, why would they be traitors? Or you may ask me, why are they so quick to remain on the fence? Because they are ecumenical. What Pearson doesn't know, because he's an unsaved man, and what Robinson doesn't know, because he is an unsaved man, is that this world is run by the devil. This is a spiritual war. This is a spiritual conflict. And because Robinson is unsaved, and Pearson is unsaved, and other groups, some well-meaning, I will say that, but because they are unsaved, they can't offer a solution to these problems. And that's why I've said over the years uh, to Patrick and other people that if I was a Muslim man and I was having a conversation with, say, Tommy Robinson, for example, or any alt-right group or anybody on the right, if I was to say to such a person, what can you offer me? I'm a holy man, I've been praying all my life. I believe there's more to life than just what we see all around us. What can you offer me? These people couldn't offer that Muslim man anything because they're unsaved pagans. Whereas we can say, how about Jesus Christ? You want to worship somebody? You want to love someone who really loves you? How about following the Son of Man? And that's where these guys, I think, fail. Well intended, I'm sure, but they're unsaved and they don't really understand this is a spiritual situation, a spiritual War, and therefore, if they're not careful, they will get uh, severely harmed. I'll come back to that in a minute. Psalm 69, Psalm 69. Look at verse 1, if you will. Save me, O God, for the waters are coming unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. 
I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My tongue is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restore that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garments, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy hear me, in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, and hide not thy face from thy servants, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily, draw nigh unto my soul, and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach, and my shame, and my dishonour. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart. And I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened, that they see not. And make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let the habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it. And they that love his name shall dwell therein. Much material from Psalm 69, I think in verse 8. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Concerning Mary, of course, and her other children are mentioned over in Mark uh, chapter 6. And the last few verses from Matthew chapter 12. And here it is building. The Messiah is very much... Uh, in the context here, 21, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
Of course, that took place when the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross. 22, let the table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. We have no king over us. We have only one king being Caesar. We shall have this man to reign over us. You think of the Sanhedrin. You think of that uh, kangaroo court that took place in the dead of night, an illegal court. The Lord was already found guilty before he opened his mouth. And here, 26, for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let not them come into thy righteousness. That is devastating. So you've got Judas partly in the picture here. You've got the Sanhedrin partly in the picture here. And you've got the Jewish elite also partly in the picture here. 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Damn them to hell. This is the words of the Messiah. Yes, David is first and foremost speaking. And he would come up against Absalom, another traitor. And of course, Absalom was the son of David. Judas is the son of David. Jesus, of course, is the everlasting father from Isaiah chapter 9, not God the Father. So here the Messiah is saying to God the Father, blot their names, remove their names from the book of the living. In other words, damn them to hell forever. And yet, according to Second uh, Peter chapter 2, he died for those that denied him. Out goes limited atonement. And yet, based on the Lord's foreknowledge, he sees what's going to happen. He sees the treachery from Judas, from the Sanhedrin, and almost to some extent uh, punches Pilate and others. And he wants to send such people to hell as a result of their treachery. And I'll discuss that also probably tomorrow morning now. Go to Psalm 109. So three traitors, I would suggest the devil, Judas, and so-called Christendom. And those good old bishops in the House of Lords meet on a regular basis, are very powerful men, and yet they won't hear any criticism against Islam, no criticism against Sharia law, wouldn't even discuss FGM, female genital mutilation, wouldn't dare, because of ecumenical, their church is ecumenical, the Pope controls all of the religions. And if you think of John Paul II kissing the Quran. If you think of Benedict the Sixteenth going into that mosque in Amman, I think it was, and if you think of the latest Pope, Pope Francis, uh, meeting with Islamic leaders, then what else can I say? Not only do they reject the blood of Christ, they reject the Scripture, they reject the accuracy of the Word of God, they undermine the Word of God, they say that Genesis can't be trusted, and they speak about a meager point, a Jesuit catchphrase. Psalm 109 Psalm 109, look at verse 1 if you will. Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compass me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love they are my adversaries, but I gave myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned. And let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. 
Let the extortioner catch all that he hath, and let the stranger spoil his labour. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be any to favour his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so did it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so did it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing like as with his garment, so did it come into his bowels like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be unto him as the garment which covereth him, and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. Let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord, and of them that speak evil against my soul. But do thou for me, O God, the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like the shadow when it declineth. I am tossed up and down as the locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh faileth of fatness. I become also approached unto them. When they looked upon me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to thy mercy, that they might know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. Let them curse, but bless not. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. Let mine adversaries be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own confusion as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth, yea, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor, to save him from those that condemn his soul. Psalm 109, once again, twofold, double application. David has got Absalom and also someone else in mind. The Messiah has got Judas in mind and quite possibly the uh, apostate Christendom, which we now have all around us. But I love verse 4. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. He loved his enemies. If you think of that text from John 18, and we'll get to it this week, when Judas found him in the garden in the dead of night, he said to Judas, friend, he calls him friend. And that's where we get the kiss of death from. And of course, Judas gave him a kiss. They realized it was the Messiah and they grabbed him. He called him his friend. He loved his own unto the end. John 3.16 is as clear as it could possibly be. And yet here, for my love, they are my adversaries, but I gave myself unto prayer. Look at verse 9 and 10. This will make your blood turn cold. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Now, I think this is in reference to the wife of Judas Iscariot and his children. Look at verse 10. Let his children, more than one, be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. So not only does Judas Iscariot break his neck, literally, and go to hell, literally, but it would appear that his family are going to suffer the consequences, which if you think of the 20th chapter from the book of Exodus concerning idolatry, how God will punish the third and the fourth generation, the consequences are going to follow. And the worst sin in the scripture, if you didn't know, is idolatry. It could be that Judas was an idolater. He worshipped money. He would sell the Lord out for money. These bishops in the Church of England, I would suggest, are selling the Lord out for money. If they weren't being paid, 
you wouldn't see them. I know when we, when we, when we were in London last year doing the Cromwell clip, Patrick tried to give some tracts to some uh, Anglican bishops, walked straight past them yes. like he was invisible. They don't need God, the Bible tracts, they're holy, good, godly men, and yet an unsaved man like Lord Pearson puts them all to shame. Incredible. 14. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. So the consequences, going back to the third and the fourth generation, are going to be repeated, uh, poured out, is here in reference to Judas. We could say this, we could say that Judas was bad blood, as they say, the son of Simon, and that term, son of Simon, I think of SOS, save our souls, slightly ironic, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. So Judas, uh, the parents of Judas are going to suffer the consequences, not just for Judas's sins, of course, that would be unfair, but for their own sins. And here the Messiah, as you would imagine, is grieved, and he wants justice. 22, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. So we can offer the Lord Jesus Christ to Muslims in ways that uh, Robinson cannot, and other right-wing people in Britain and America. We can offer the Lord Jesus Christ to anyone, anywhere, at any time. And we hope to do so over the next five days in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Perth, Stirling, and Dundee. Our purpose isn't just to have a Bible study. Our purpose is to get people saved. We have a banner. We have the ability to street preach. We have a few thousand tracks. We're here for a purpose. We're not just a talking shop. 24, my knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh faileth of fatness. This morning, we were having breakfast, and we were talking about the greats from the uh, 18th century and afterwards, and we spoke about a guy called Chapman, a guy called Wesley, and I gave the account, I recalled the story that I read years ago, where Wesley was having dinner with an acquaintance. It was probably early evening, the meal had finished, and the acquaintance of Wesley said to him, would you have a cup of tea or something after the meal to wash it down sort of thing? And Wesley said, I can't, I have an appointment at four o'clock tomorrow morning. And the acquaintance of Wesley said, oh, I see. Who are you meeting at four o'clock in the morning? And he said, the Lord. He had a prayer meeting and he would pray for an hour or two, jump on a horse and go from, uh, from uh, London to Newcastle. Puts us all to shame. My knees are weak through fasting, like the Lord's half-brother, James. He was called Camonese. And my flesh faileth of fatness. Well, not in reference to the Messiah. Again, these verses have a twofold application. On the one hand, in reference to David. And on the other hand, in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. But 25, I became also approached unto them. When they looked upon me, they shaked their heads. Very reminiscent of the Lord dying on the cross. Is he calling for Elijah? Who is he calling for? He saved others, let him save himself. Help me, 26, O Lord my God. O save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord's right hand man, that thou, Lord, hast done it. Let them curse, but bless not. When they arise, let them be ashamed. But let thy servant rejoice. And of course he would rejoice. He conquered death, unlike Muhammad unlike anyone else Uh, 31 for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul so he will stand at the right hand of the poor in reference i would suggest to the messiah 
to save him from those that condemn his soul. He's going to die for those that condemn him. And yet verse 6, set thou a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right hand. So you've got Satan standing at the right hand of God, which would be the great white throne. And yet 31, he shall stand at the right hand of the poor Messiah to save him from those that condemn his soul. So verse 6, the devil. Verse 6, Judas. 31, David as a merciful godly king interceding for his own people. And also 31, concerning the Messiah. I'll give you one more, and we'll close for this morning. Uh, Psalm 55. Psalm uh, 55, and like I say, quite a lot of material to try and cover over the next few mornings concerning Judas Iscariot, treachery and suicide. Psalm 55, Psalm 55, look at verse uh, 12, if you will. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me, that did magnify himself against me, then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide, and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, and walked unto the house of God in company. Let death seize upon them, and let them go down quick into hell. For wickedness is in their dwellings, and among them. As for me... I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Mine own familiar friend, for three and a half years we crisscrossed Israel. I would commission you to cast out devils, Matthew chapter 10, and we'll look at that tomorrow. You saw me in action. You heard me pray like you never heard anybody else pray in all of your life. We took sweet counsel together. We walked into the house of God, Jerusalem. It was not an enemy, verse 12. Then... I could have borne it, could have put up with it, could have handled it. Neither was it he that hated me, that did magnify himself against me. Five times from Isaiah chapter 14, the devil says, I will ascend, I will be like the Most High. I will do this, I will do that five times. I think it is from memory. And here, Judas wants to magnify himself against the Messiah, like the devil wanted to magnify himself against almighty God. Then I would have hid myself from him, but it was thou, a man, mine equal. This is where the cults get all tied up. They say Jesus Christ was a good man, but that he was only a man. And they demote him. They degrade him to the status of just a man. But of course he was the God-man. He was 100% man and 100% God. He is God the Son, not God the Father. But it was thou, a man, mine own equal, a fellow Jew, my guide, and mine acquaintance. I think the Lord loved the twelve equally. Of course, he was closer uh, to John, and he was also very close to Peter. But when it speaks about him being the everlasting father from Isaiah chapter 9, I think it was a fair love, a compassionate love. And like I say, according to John 19, it says how he... Make that John 17, how he loved his own unto the end. So these verses, four parts of the Old Testament, will lay the foundation for hopefully a four-day study, profiling Judas Iscariot, building up to the greatest traitor that the world has ever known, excluding the devil, of course, uh, rebelling against the Lord, along with one-third of the angels. But when it comes to Judas, like the Judas goat, People use the Judas goat analogy, or you are a Judas, you are a, uh, a traitor. They call you Judas. You know that you in 
you know, you're in a bad way, really, when someone calls you Judas. They say you are a traitor. You stab me in the back. Another term they use, which, of course, is accredited to Judas Iscariot. One of the problems when it comes to looking at people such as Judas Iscariot, the most infamous human in the Word of God, is that uh, Hollywood people especially like to profile someone such as Judas Iscariot, elevate him, and give him more uh, coverage in a movie than he probably deserves. And if you think of the film uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told, which uh, we've already spoken about, was made in 1960, 1961, three and a half hour long movie, never once does uh, Max von Sydow, who plays the Lord Jesus, speak about born again, repentance, or the second coming. And during that very long movie, probably too long, three and a half hours, at the end, Judas Iscariot throws himself into the fire. Now you say, why would he do that? Is it scriptural? Of course, the answer would be no, it isn't scriptural. He did that because Stevens wanted to show solidarity to the Buddhists in Vietnam during the 1960s and 70s who would throw themselves alive into the fire to show their disgust, their distress and depression over the entire Vietnam War. And therefore Stevens, an unsaved man, thought, why not do something similar for Judas Iscariot? Let's have uh, Judas Iscariot, played by a British actor, throw himself into the fire. It's a great scene from the point of uh, uh, cinemaology, I think they call it, or videology, not quite sure the exact term. Photography, perhaps, would be a better description. But it's not scriptural. And this is the problem, once again, when it comes to directors, producers, scriptwriters taking artistic license, artistic liberty. Judas Iscariot speaks no more than three times in the entire New Testament. And yet, like I say, if you look at uh, King of Kings, the first 50 minutes of the movie, he's in every scene. Judas is working with the Zealots, modern-day IRA, and he's got a big part in that 19... 61 movie, yeah, 60. They were made around the same time. Ben-Hur was 59, King of Kings, 60, Greatest Story, 61. Those were the days when American movies, American uh, studios, Hollywood, of course, put out, for the most part, pretty decent movies. Not completely scriptural, but like I say, uh, the problem would be how to profile Judas and for a good number of people, unsaved people, they like to elevate him. Go to Jeremiah 48, please. Jeremiah 48. And like I say, the greatest or the most infamous traitor would be the devil, of course. He had the audacity, he had the gall to challenge the Lord. And on top of that, so did a good number of angels. The Word of God speaks about a third. And we can suggest, we can uh, speculate without going beyond the scripture to say this, that a third of the angels could be several thousand. It could be several million. We don't know. If you think about the book of Daniel, it speaks about the prince of Persia withstanding Gabriel, who was sent to uh, aid Daniel. And that prince had a lot of power. The devil is called the prince of the power of the air. And when we do street work, and yesterday we were in Glasgow, you feel the breeze, as somebody once said. You feel the presence. You feel the influence. And within a first not even one minute of arriving, getting the banner up and eating my first mouthful of sandwich. A chap came over to us. I won't name the charity that he was representing. And he said something along the lines of, are you going to be standing here 
Are you going to be street preaching? If you are, may I suggest you preach down the road? And I thought, how dare you? If we were Islamic, if we were communist, if we were anarchists, they wouldn't have come over to us. They wouldn't have dared. And I said to him, somewhat blase, well, we just arrived. This is a great spot. And of course it was. Buchanan Street and George Buchanan was King James's uh, tutor, a great scholar. And the purpose of our trip to Edinburgh, especially this week, will be to film material about King James, referred to as Britain's Solomon, and Mary, Queen of Scots, his mother. And half of Glasgow is named after Buchanan. It must be George Buchanan, surely. Probably uh, Glasgow's most famous son. And then two minutes of arriving, not even that really. We've got a charity man asking questions. Because preaching is bad for business, you understand. And this chap walked over, and I thought to myself, who is he? And he was listening, and he was uh, getting involved. And Patrick thought he was from the council, which is a fair assumption to make. And I thought, is he for us or against us? Turned out he was for us, surprisingly. And he said to the uh, charity man, why are you hassling them? And he said this, he said the ordinances for Glasgow make it very clear that you, referring to street collectors, charity people, we call such chuggers, are not allowed to stand within, I think, 30 yards of people such as us, preachers, musicians. We refer to ourselves as street people, uh, for use of a better term. And he said, you can't really stand that near to us. And there was a woman, probably as near as we are, and he says, she's too near. And the chap sort of gave her a nod, say, go down the hill. Uh, Buchanan Street, if you don't know, is on a steep hill. And this thing went on for about five or six minutes. And I was eating my lunch, like I say, and I don't like to talk while I'm eating. It's kind of rude. But what can you do? We drove two hours to get to Glasgow. We were hungry. It was lunchtime. And this is how the devil works. We've had this many times, Patrick and I. We arrive in a town, and the first 10 seconds, 25, 30 seconds, the banner goes up. They know who you are. They know what you are. And it's like uh, bees drawn to honey or a rag to a bull, and they come over, and away we go, back and forth. Well, to cut a long story short, uh, we made the case that we weren't going to move. It was a good spot. It was a brilliant spot. And the charity worker wasn't expecting us to be resilient, and he wasn't expecting to have this man challenge him. And no, it wasn't filmed, if you uh, are wanting to know. It wasn't something we expected. But the point is this. There are unclean spirits. There are... Uh, legions, principalities assigned to towns, cities, nations. I believe that, and we have experienced that many times over the year. From Jeremiah 48, look at verse 24, please. And upon Keriuth, and upon Bozrah, and upon all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near, the horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, saith the Lord. The term Iscariot means man from Keriuth. And like I say, Judas Iscariot is the most infamous man in the word of God. And here Jeremiah 48, verses 24 to 25, refer to such a character. And also of interest to me from verse 25, his arm is broken. If you think about the uh, idol shepherd, spelt I-D-O-L, it of course, is in reference to the Antichrist, and it speaks about such having a problem with one of his eyes. 
And here, Judas Iscariot is referred to from verses 24 and 25 in reference to having his arm broken. The horn of Moab is cut off. And of course, horn is a description for power. The people of Moab are found in Genesis 19, 32 to 38. Genesis 19, 32 to 38. Moab today, if you are wanting to know, will be the east bank of Jordan. And if you are a Jew, you are prohibited from having any real presence in countries such as Jordan, Iran, and up until this year, Saudi Arabia. Of course, Saudi Arabia have a new prince, a new king, a very brave man. And like I said last time concerning Tommy Robinson, although he is an unsaved man with a pretty foul mouth, uh, he is a patriot, and his heart is probably in the right place. And the same is probably true of the new crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Unsaved, of course, we're not going to kid ourselves. He is a Mohammedan, a Muslim, but he's saying the right things. He's reaching out to Israel. He is restoring relations with Israel, which is completely unexpected, like uh, what we saw this uh, week concerning the leaders from North and South Korea coming together, crossing the DMZ, and pictures I never thought I'd ever live to see. For the first time in 65 years, North meets South, South meets North. Saudi Arabia, for the first time since, what, 1916? Mm -hmm. Since Allenby and Lawrence. Lawrence of Arabia carved up the Middle East. People are coming together. Now, of course, we know this is what we call, uh, we call the phony war, the Cold War to some extent. If you think back to the late 1930s, before uh, Britain declared war, on Germany. A lot of people are talking about peace in Europe. Uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain flew out from Croydon Airport to Bonn yeah. and he had a meeting with Adolf Hitler and he came back and he said, great news, peace in our lifetime. And Churchill said to himself rather uh, sarcastically, the guy is dreaming. Churchill was no fool and Chamberlain was completely taken in. It could be the same with North meeting South concerning Korea. It could be the same with Riyadh and Jerusalem. In fact, next month, Jerusalem will be recognized as a capital of Israel. We don't know. There's much that we don't know. But 48, 24, and upon Kerioth, and upon Bozrah, and upon all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near, the horn of Moab is cut off, referred to as death, like from Daniel 9. He'll be cut off, but not for himself. And his arm is broken, damaged, saith the Lord. So these verses all point to Judas Iscariot from the Old Testament feeding into the New Testament. You can't understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. As somebody once said this, they said, well, the Catholic Church wrote the Bible, and you non-Catholics have got no right to read the Bible. They say this is a Catholic book. But what they neglect to tell their people is that three-thirds of the Word of God in fact, make that three-fourths of the Word of God were written by the Jews. Three-fourths of the Scripture were written by the Jews before the Church was ever born, before the Lord Jesus Christ was ever incarnated. This is not a Catholic book. And just because uh, the Council of Carthage would affirm that the New Testament consists of 27 books means nothing to us. The early church had the word of God. They knew what the word of God was. Carthage, at best, was simply reaffirming what the early church always knew. Go to Jude, please, a tiny New Testament book. And last time, one of the descriptions concerning 
Judas Iscariot and his descendants was, or was the word vagabond, vagabonds, from that well-known Sinatra song, New York, New York, vagabond, vagabond. And Jude picks up this type of a thing, and Jude, just before the book of Revelation, if you don't know, Jude, verse 12, says this, These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Wandering stars, the wandering Jew. If you had the pre-Vatican II uh, Catholic Missal, and I know Patrick's got one at home, it says quite a lot about Jewry, almost bordering on hate material. I'd like to see somebody take the Catholic Church to court. I'd like to see uh, Cherie Blair, for example, or Nancy Pelosi, for example, two Catholic feminist lawyers, or other well-known Catholic women take their beloved church to courts on the grounds of discrimination, anti-Semitism. Jeremy Corbyn has been quite rightly attacked, uh, vilified, or that may be somewhat of a strong word, but castigated by the press of late for his party's inbred anti-Semitism towards the Jews. And around a week or so ago, there were thousands of Jews outside of Parliament, and those pictures went all around the world, and... They weren't gathering against the EDL. They weren't gathering against Britain First. They weren't gathering against Pam Geller or Robert Spencer. They weren't gathering against that uh, Dutch politician, Gert Wilders. They were gathering outside Parliament Square because of the Labour Party, a left-wing socialist-slash-communist party. Isn't that incredible? They were upset that the leader of the Labour Party wasn't doing enough to stamp out anti-Semitism. And the editor, the news editor, excuse me, the political editor, the political editor at the BBC, uh, Laura Kunzberg, a Jewish woman, was at the Labour Party conference last year. And she had to do something which has never been done in Britain before. And you may not know what it was, but this political editor of the BBC, Britain's number one uh, television station, was receiving death threats. Not from Britain First, not from the EDL, not from some alt-right group, but from the Labour Party. How about that? A group called Momentum, a far-left-wing group that have infiltrated the Labour Party, going back to what took place back in the 1980s, when Michael Foote was leader, and Neil Kinnock, and the Labour Party had to kick out these people. They're Trotskyites. Militant. They are Marxists. This is incredible. You've got a left-wing British journalist being somewhat critical of the Labour Party, and as a result, she is, present tense, receiving death threats. And therefore, her bosses had to hire bodyguards. This is Britain. This is the 21st century. Absolutely incredible. But here, we're looking at Jude 12 and 13. And Jude, if you don't know harmonizes very nicely with First Peter, and it makes the case that what we see in a physical sense is only part of the picture. There is an, ins- there is an invisible sphere all around us. There's a war all around us. There is, or there are spirits, devils, demons, call them what you will, that are infiltrating, that are causing great wickedness in high places. If you go back to 2005, 
We had Tony Blair, the Prime Minister, a church man, and I mean like going to church every Sunday, and this so-called Christian man had the great idea to make it legal for civil marriages, and people said, well, it wasn't an atheist who brought this in, it was a so-called Christian. In 2007, Tony Blair became a Catholic. Two years ago, David Cameron, make that three years ago, another very religious person, church person, uh, decided to introduce same-sex marriage, building on Tony Blair's wonderful legislation. And the person who drafted the legislation for the same-sex marriage was Theresa May, a very devout Anglican, goes to church with her husband every Sunday, has regular meetings with the Archbishop of Canterbury, a very devout woman. And yet this woman, along with Blair, a Catholic, Cameron, a fellow Anglican, introduced legislation into the UK, which we didn't vote on. We weren't asked our opinion on it. Going back to the abolition of the death penalty in 1964, based on a private member's bill in the House of Commons, the Abortion Act, 1969, based on a private member's bill, nobody voted on it. And if you think we have democracy in the UK, you're kidding yourself. We have a form of democracy, but not the real thing. These are spots in your feasts of charity, 12, when they feast with you. Feed themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water. Carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll get to that next time, speaks about the fruits. How a good tree brings forth good fruit, and a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. But here, trees whose fruit withereth, dries up, without fruits, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea. See Leviathan, the beast comes out of the sea, Revelation 13, foaming out their own shame. And yet today, these people don't have shame. Like I said last time, the Scottish conservative leader is expecting her baby in the autumn with her lesbian wife. And apparently they're very proud of themselves for doing this without a man. And yet that's not quite the whole story. Because some man somewhere donated his sperm to this couple and the statistics, if you don't know, suggest, in fact, the statistics prove that to give a child the best start in life, that child needs its mother and father. Not mother and mother, not father and father, but mother and father. And I got some shocking statistics, which I may get time to look at this morning, I don't know. And I think of these people, these same-sex couples having children, or even couples that live together having children and the damage that will come down the line. Wandering stars, now, wandering stars, vagabonds, vagabond, no home, no job. I think it was Psalm 69 or 109. The Lord, speaking through David, made the case very clearly that he wanted the uh, consequences to follow concerning the treachery of Judas Iscariot. And therefore, we are reading about wandering stars. Now, in the context, this is in reference to demons, devils, John chapter 6, the Lord speaks about Judas being a devil. I'll speak about that probably next time. But here, these people are referred to as wandering stars. They are going around, wandering the earth. Job chapter 1, the Lord says to Satan, Whence comest thou? And he says, going to and fro in the earth. He's walking around in the earth. Not just on the earth, but in the earth. He's going in and he's coming up. You've got the beasts from Revelation coming up out of the earth. Not coming from outside of the solar system like UFOs, but they're going to come from under the earth. And the devil 
seems to be able to come and go as he wants, and therefore these are wandering stars. Going back to my suggestion, my hypothesis, that Judas Iscariot, referred to prophetically as a vagabond from the Old Testament, meaning a wandering star, also a wandering Jew. That was a term which the Catholic Church used for a long time. The wandering Jew, wandering Jews, and they have suffered since probably 70 AD more than any other people. And you say, why would that be the case? Well, because they rejected their Messiah. I've had people who don't want to say that. I've heard of Messianic people who, like us, are pre-millennial, pro-Israel, but they don't want to say that. I'll say it. They rejected their Messiah, and that was the final straw for them. If you think of 1 Samuel chapter 8, they would reject God the Father. Matthew 27, they reject God the Son. Acts chapter 7, they reject God the Holy Ghost. What else can he do? Kick them out. And they wander for 2,000 years, and here... The term wandering stars refers to demons, devils, and such are in people. Such, at least one, would be in Judas Iscariot, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These demons, these devils, could not be redeemed. It was impossible to do so. Once they fell, there was no way back for them. But thankfully, by the grace of God, he has made it possible to redeem mankind. The very moment they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you some statistics, if I may. Single parent mothers, like 35%, will experience children with learning difficulties. Such children will run away. Some of those people go on to become rapists, end up in jail. In fact, 65% of people in jail have come from single parent homes. There was a group in the UK some years ago called Fathers for Justice, They've gone somewhat quiet in recent years. And these men would climb up onto very prominent buildings like the Houses of Commons and other places. And they would say, we demand to see our children. We've lost contact with our children because in the UK, the majority of courts take the mother's side and the fathers are frozen out many times, never get a chance to see their children again. And those kids grow up desperately wanting to reconnect with their fathers. We know of one particular person, and I shan't name this person, who's going through a very difficult divorce at the moment, and this person has a child, and this child is constantly wanting to speak with their father. And the father has apparently said, without going into detail, obviously, I've moved on, I'm not returning to such and such of a location, and that child is going to suffer. And my concern for that child and children such as that is that that child will grow up with heartache, desperately in need of a father figure, and the chances are that many suitors will come and go down the line. This person that we know very well may or may not remarry. If uh, a remarriage takes place, it's a huge gamble. Because what normally happens is this. Those kids will say, you're not my father. You can't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? And I've known many people. In fact, I remember years ago when I was a kid, I knew a guy, we knew a guy, a friend of the family, and he was dating a woman and she had two daughters from her first marriage he never married her but he lived with her on and off for a while and he got quite close to her daughters tried to do the right thing by her daughters interestingly and these girls got older started to date started to do what girls do when they start to date and he wanted to assert his authority now he meant well but the problem was this he wasn't their father and he said this uh you can't go out wearing that or what time are you going to be coming back tonight Or you can't bring your boyfriends back to the house, that kind of thing. And these two girls, 17, 18, 19, who do you think you are? You're not our father, but I've raised you, he said. 
I've been with your mother for 12 years. Your father's long gone, which of course was the case. Yeah, but you're not our father. Who do you think you are? And that was the beginning of the end of his relationship with his girlfriend, partner, call her what you will. But those two girls fall into that category, potentially that 35% category of ending up with learning difficulties, possibly jail time. And yes, in the, the UK, jails are full. I think it was two or three years ago, the capacity in the UK is 90,000. That's the capacity for people to be held in jails, 90,000. And maybe four or five years ago, I forget the exact year, it was up to 89,000 people. And people are saying, what are we going to do? We're almost at breaking point. And uh, closed jail cells were having to be reopened. Uh, Military bases were being considered to hold people. It came very near to breaking. But a good number of those people come from single-parent families, learning difficulties, like I say, potential rapists. And, of course, once they arrive in jail, it's a very difficult route for them. This January, we went down to London to uh, prepare some material for King James. And during the drive down to London, a good friend of the ministry phoned us up and spoke to Patrick. And he said... uh, He told us a couple of things. First of all, he told us that his father had just committed suicide and how his father was a saved man, but the pressure became too much for him, like Peter Rutman Jr., and we'll discuss that probably next time. And could we pray for him? And, of course, we said that we would. This same brother, friend of the ministry, broke the news to us late last year that his brother, his biological brother, had been sentenced to jail time for seven years and, again, is a saved person. I know some people won't won't like me saying that, but this brother of his that I know of, I don't know him that well, but I know of him, and I've been uh, in correspondence with him, is now doing a seven stretch, as they say. Seven years in jail, and the first that I heard of this last year, I was very concerned, and I said to Patrick, I need to write to him. We need to pray for him, because most people that go into jail end up killing themselves. In fact, I was told uh, by Patrick yesterday that... Three men every week take their own lives in jail. Not the wardens, not the governors, but jail, people, prisoners, men and women. There's no way out. I saw a documentary just last month about the Mays Jail in Northern Ireland back in the 70s and 80s. And what I didn't realise, what I didn't appreciate was that jail, which held IRA people, UVF people, Catholics, Protestants, they're all terrorists, were all thrown together. There was no segregation. I never knew that. IRA on one wing... UVF on the other wing. These guys came together, got into fights. Certain people are thrown off the balconies, murdered, killed, sodomized, etc., etc., etc. It's just horrific. And that's why uh, when it comes to people that fall from grace, saved people, saved people, yes, saved people, when they fall from grace, end up paying huge price. So these two verses refer to... Indirectly, the spirit that was indwelling Judas Iscariot and some of these people in jail today may well be, in, uh, be possessed, perhaps, by unclean spirits and, as a result, are on the road to ruin. We are now living in a generation that has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, we know that. The Word of God said this would happen. And as a result, you've got people doing things that they couldn't have done. I mean, just 10 years ago. And, of course, the next thing, or you wonder what the next law will be, I guess it will be probably polygamy bestiality it has to be paedophilia and who knows what else so 12 and 13 
referred to the consequences of these wandering stars. Judas Iscariot was certainly indwelt by an unclean spirit and as a result went on to suffer uh, the everlasting fire forever or the blackness of darkness forever. But what's even worse than that will be the consequences of his widow and their children suffering. Psalm 69, Psalm 109. And it could just be, if these statistics are correct, and I have no reason to doubt that they are not, that 65% of those in jail came from single-parent families. Judas Iscariot may have been, can I suggest, 35? Can I suggest 40 years of age? Can I suggest that his children were under the age of 18? I think it's a fair assumption. And therefore his children are going to suffer the consequences of what their father would do, going back to, I will visit the iniquities on the uh, children from their parents to the third and fourth generation. Because Judas was an idolater. He was money, money, money mad. He was into money, and he sold the Lord out for 30 pieces of silver. And as a result, not only would he kill himself, not only would he die with everlasting shame, which is also spoken about from the book of Daniel, but his wife would suffer the consequences, and quite likely his children. And this is the absolute truth when it comes to parents having children, whether in marriage or out of marriage, they will suffer uh, the consequences. I'll tell you one final story in close. I spoke to a man in America some years ago. He did 15 years for armed robbery, got saved in prison in America, somewhere in Alabama, deep south of America. And he said this, he said, well, James, I got saved in jail. I came out of jail and I tried to clear the air with my wife. I had two children, a boy and a girl, and the first thing I did when I came out of jail was to obviously try and reconcile with my wife. It was too late. She had divorced him. I mean, 15 years is a long time to wait for anyone. Son and a daughter, and he spent two or three years rebuilding relations with his children, but the damage was done. And he said, uh, divorce is the equivalent to child abuse. Of course, his marriage was long over. His kids were, thankfully, not as young as this particular child that I'm thinking about who's going through a difficult divorce at present. But nevertheless, they had lost a father. Their mother had divorced him and gone off with somebody else. The consequences were terrible. And not only was he suicidal, his children at times were suicidal as well. And this goes back to why some people take their own lives because they come from broken backgrounds. And we call such broken Britain. So when we speak about treachery, it uh, is right to start from the religious perspective because we are all Bible-believing Christians. And I've already spoken about the bishops in the House of Lords, 26 to be precise, unable, unwilling to speak against Islam and other problems today. And yet you couldn't keep them quiet when it comes to same-sex marriage, female ordination and other subjects which... Uh, of course, not found in Scripture. Also, you couldn't keep them quiet when it comes to climate control, third world debt, and dealing with the AIDS issue, and also global warming. And yet we are trying to uh, awaken people, and the whole purpose of being in Scotland for this outreach is to get people saved. We're not here for our own health. We have been blessed with very nice weather. But I'm going to say this, that those bishops are traitors. Officially, uh, Protestant, ordained, very powerful men. I mean, 26 bishops, if they wanted to, could make quite a noise, could make quite a commotion, could have prayed all night against the same-sex marriage bill, could have fasted, could have called the uh, 
media in. They could have had a fast on Parliament Square. That would have been interesting to watch, wouldn't it? There was a guy on Parliament Square, I forget his name, he was anti the Iraq war, and he was there for, I think, nine years, seven days a week. He slept on Parliament Square. And the High Court of London uh, initially uh, gave the green light to have him removed. He was an eyesore. And three o'clock in the morning, the police from the Met arrived, all 12 of them, uh, crashed into his tent, got him out of his tent, dismantled his uh, makeshift demonstration, banners, propaganda stuff, such and such, and he was taken to the local police station, only to be told that the police had overstepped the mark. And on top of that, they'd acted unlawfully. And they were told to take, I think his name was Jeff someone, back to Parliament Square and put his tent back up exactly the way he had it, put his boards back, everything. Talk about humiliating. But that man was an unsaved individual, an eccentric character, but he had morals, he had principles, unlike the bishops in the Church of England. And he was outside Parliament Square for nine years, like day and night, like all year round, because he was against the Iraq War. Now imagine one bishop saying, I am disgusted with this government, going back to the Blair days. I will not ever stand for same-sex marriage. I will never stand for civil unions. And I'm going to be uh, praying and fasting until the government reverses it. Wouldn't that be amazing to watch? Never happens, of course. And those men could do so much. They could really shame governments, past and present. But all they are interested in is their money. Getting there. £300 every day when they go into the House of Lords. Sign in and sign out. That is a picture that is a very clear picture of treachery. From the religious realm, we have to look at the political realm because the powers that be are ordained of God. And I've already spoken about Tony Blair, Catholic, Theresa May, Anglican and other well-known British politicians that have sold Britain out. You could go back to the 1970s when Britain went into the European Union and the initial idea was to bring economies together, not countries, economies. And over a period of time, you have this amalgamation 27 countries under Brussels. That government back in the 1970s under Edward Heath sold out Britain, betrayed Britain. So let's keep those thoughts in mind as we look at Matthew chapter 10 for this morning and return back to the main points of this message, Judas Iscariot, the number one traitor in scripture. And along the way, we will look at suicide because one more time, if you are a man living in the UK, you are four times more likely to kill yourself than a woman. Every two hours, a man in the UK takes his own life. That is around 84 a week. There are very few people speaking out for such people. If you think about the Bokaran people in Nigeria, four or five years ago, that kidnapped all those girls. And people like Michelle Obama, people like Hillary Clinton, and Theresa May, and Sarah Brown, another well-known Feminists got their placards up, bring our girls back, bring our girls back, hashtag bring our girls back. It made great television. What you weren't told, not only were girls snatched, several hundred, but what you weren't told were how 10,000 boys were kidnapped as well, sex slaves. For Boko Haram, an Islamic militant group, you heard nothing from the bishops and the lords about that. You heard nothing from Prime Minister May or... Tony Blair or Barack Obama, who says he's a Christian. You had nothing from those people because they're men. Who cares about men? And this is an attack on men. And if you have a son or if you are a man, you are now up against it. 
women are now in control and they will continue if they can to really put the squeeze on you and I think unless men fight back not in a physical sense but in a uh, spiritual sense unless people stand up unless men stand up and reclaim their rightful place in society we will be eradicated in the next 25 years Matthew chapter 10 Matthew chapter 10 look at verse 1 please and when he had called unto him his 12 disciples he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease so here Matthew chapter 10 verse 1 is going to take a few moments to tell you how the Lord Jesus Christ has chosen him 12 men not women but men referred to here as disciples meaning followers and he's going to give them power not just authority but power against over unclean spirits and it could be that some of the wickedness that we've seen in recent years some of the attacks that we've witnessed in recent years has taken place due to unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease if our lord didn't love us we'd be in great trouble when i first got saved i remember thinking to myself this just imagine if god had been the devil and satan was the creator of this universe you couldn't stop it you couldn't stand against him and just imagine for the fun of it that he created this world for his own pleasures sadistic pleasures and he wanted to create the world and torture people first of all on this earth and then off into hell when they die forever wouldn't that be grim wouldn't that be depressing that'd be disastrous i mean you couldn't really comprehend it it'd be just terrible to perceive but thankfully our god is a good god a loving god and it's worth reminding ourselves that i caught an interview uh last month on youtube uh concerning megan phelps from the westboro baptist church i hadn't realized that she's no longer a christian i hadn't realized that she's no longer in that hyper calvinist cult in kansas topeka kansas and is no longer a believer is now an atheist is now doing the rounds and to cut a long story short she was unable to get her head around uh romans 9 and john 8 and other verses and because she can't understand those scriptures she has literally thrown in the towel she's now an atheist she too is guilty of treachery because what she's now doing is not only turning her back on the lord she's going on secular television shows and radio shows mocking the lord mocking the scripture allowing atheists to take scriptures out of context in fact one interview i saw which i know i've shared with some of you people around this table the man interviewing her blasphemed the lord's name three times she didn't say a word now that woman spent 30 years of her life in a Christian cult. Okay, it was a cult. Mm. But I'd like to think there were times when her parents showed her affection, family time, praying time, just what all normal families do. I'd like to think there were times when Megan was growing up with her many siblings and mum and dad were doing what parents do, days out, fun time, and at least speaking about the Lord. I mean, I never grew up in that environment of doing Bible stuff. I wasn't saved until 16 years ago. But she had it from day one. And clearly she was never saved to begin with. But for the uh, purpose of this message, I'm going to suggest this, that she is also a traitor. Not only did she turn her back on that Christian cult, hyper-Calvinist cult, to be precise, and good riddance to them, of course, but she turned her back on the Lord. Look at verse 2. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, 
James, the son of Alphaeus, and Elabius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So I sat down a couple of weeks ago to prepare for this five-day message, looking at Judas, the traitor, and also trying to tie this in with suicide. And maybe I've forgotten this, I don't know, but Matthew, also referred to as Levi, uh, is called the son of Alphaeus. And for Mark 2, James, the son of Alphaeus, is also mentioned. So once again, you've got many uh, brothers in Scripture, at least three groups of brothers in the New Testament. You've got James and John, Peter and Andrew, Levi, Levi, and James. And here you've got the apostles all being mentioned. And right at the end, verse 4, And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. The entire New Testament, or the four Gospels, each of the four Gospels list Judas as the traitor each and every time. And it's important that we note that. What we don't really understand is the purpose or the motive for Judas uh, to sell the Lord out. We don't really understand why the Lord chose him either. But going back to people such as uh, Megan Phelps and people such as her are also guilty of treachery, but on a minor scale or not to the severe level of, of Judas Iscariot. Look at verse 5, please. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So first and foremost, the Lord wants his apostles, including Judas, referred to as a devil from John chapter 6, to go to the lost house of Israel, the Jews, and on top of that, verse 7, and as ye go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven, which in the context will be signs and wonders with the king on the earth, and he was on the earth for three and a half years. Verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. That's pretty unique. You won't find many religious people doing what they do for nothing. Most religious people do what they do for financial gain. Let's not kid ourselves. Nine, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. For the workman is worthy of his meat. I wonder what was going through the mind of Judas Iscariot when he received this commission. And the Lord was fair to each and every one of them. They all had the authority to do what the Lord has just spoken about. They would all raise the dead. They would all preach the gospel. And yet something is still lacking as far as Judas is concerned. Verse 11. And into whatsoever city or town you shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. And when you come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of the house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Every so often we go to a town, we get the banner up, we start preaching, and we deal with indifference, mockery, the usual stuff, and it's pretty difficult. I never get used to it. And yet the uh, Christian celebrities that do the rounds, that go from television studio to studio... Uh, radio station to radio station, rarely, if ever, do street work. Wouldn't really know what it means to suffer on the streets or 
put up with scorn and ridicule, and yet the apostles did understand that, including Judas as well. 15. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Well, of course, the master has sent his men out, has commissioned his men. His men have the sign gifts. We don't, of course. And on top of that, for those that would turn down the master's message, they'll be judged. On top of that, it'll be more tolerable. How about that? More tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodomites, Old Testament, in the day of judgment than for that city. Incredible. Look at verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I love that. So the commission is very clear. Preach, first and foremost, in and around Israel. As you go, you can do sign gifts, you can heal the sick, cleanse lepers, raise the dead. A lot of spiritually dead people in the UK today. And if they don't want to hear it or receive it, let them be, leave them where they are. Look at verse 17. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they shall scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And that, of course, would, uh, would uh, include also Judas Iscariot. Jump over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. So, so far, everyone is receiving the same. There's no favoritism. Yes, there'll be private briefings along the way. But for the most part, the Lord Jesus Christ, referred to as the everlasting Father, from Isaiah chapter 9, is showing no favoritism is giving all 12 of his apostles a commission, an anointing, and yet in spite of that, in spite of that, something is wrong in the hearts of Judas Iscariot. It's difficult to know exactly what it was or when it first uh, started to appear. We know later on in Scripture that the apostles had no idea which one of them would be the traitor. Matthew 12, look at verse 31, if you will. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. So now we get into the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we've said this many times over the years, that the worst sin that anyone can really commit is a sin of unbelief. But here you've got the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, which I'm going to suggest Judas would be guilty of. 33, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruits. In the context, Israel, not necessarily the church. 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. I think this is in reference to Judas Iscariot. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. So by your words, 
you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's as simple as that. You're either saved or unsaved. 37. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state to that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. I would expect an unsaved politician. I would expect an atheist in... uh, governments to pass some of the laws that have been passed in recent years i would expect wicked politicians who don't go to church who don't profess to believe in god people such as richard dawkins and others to pass some of the worst laws that have ever passed the books in the uk but that's not what has happened we've had so-called christian leaders passing laws in recent years and they are guilty of treachery but again i think it's absolutely fair to say there are unclean spirits behind such people, and quite likely inside of such people. And these verses make the case that there is an invisible war going on all around us, not just what we see in a physical sense, but what we see or what we can detect in a spiritual sense. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits, Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And yet, in spite of that, the apostles still were unable to spot a traitor in their midst Look at Paul, look at the uh, situation with Peter in Antioch, look at Barnabas, look at uh, other people in the New Testament who became guilty of heresy and weren't initially spotted until it became impossible to ignore. So you've got a good tree, you've got a bad tree. You've got good fruit, you've got bad fruit. You're either saved or you're unsaved. Now in the context, these verses are aimed at Israel. Later on, Christ would curse the fig tree. It is problematic to take these verses and apply them to those of us living in the church age and say, well, you don't produce much good fruit, or I produce more good fruit than you. That is problematic. But for Israel as a nation, it wasn't problematic. Israel as a nation were under the covenants, many covenants in the Old Testament. They were the people of God. They were the chosen race. They were God's elect nation. And if we get time, I want to speak about Manasseh and also Hezekiah. Jump over to verse 24. Uh, Verse 24. Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Of course, Christ is the rock. Judas Iscariot was never saved to begin with. He's like most people that we know, very religious, wants to appear as something special likes to dress up like the bishops in the House of Lords, likes people to give him respect, uh, pay homage to him, and yet his heart is dead, completely unregenerate. 26. 
And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So, obviously, the foundation is Christ, and he's speaking about those that will need to build their foundation on the rock of all ages, being the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, two groups of people, the saved and the unsaved. And here the Lord wants you to build on him. 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I've never heard a bishop, a priest, or anyone in clerical uh, clothing preach a message that has ever really done anything for me. I normally fall asleep when I see these guys. In fact, I was sent a video from a good friend of our ministry who's not here this morning. And the video that she sent me to watch, I think some of you have seen it as well, was a Catholic priest uh, in America justifying tattoos. And it was a very uh, incoherent message as far as I was concerned. And I watched the first four or five minutes. It wasn't a long video, but it was long enough before I fell asleep. And I left a comment on his uh, video channel correcting him. And of course, 10 minutes later, the comment disappeared. But those guys couldn't keep me awake. You couldn't pay me to watch those videos. And yet he's an ordained, very important man. He's an ordained Catholic priest. And he is very proud of his ordination. You hear these people, they say, I was ordained by such and such. They're very proud of that. Very proud of that. I heard a Rutman sermon some years ago. And he said, I've been uh, in the ministry for 64 years. And I have ordained uh, hundreds of people. And I can tell you that every time I lay my hands on one of my men, I feel... It's a holy event, and I feel it's linked back to Paul. And when I was ordained back in 19-something, 40-something, after he left Bob Jones University, the hands were put on me, the deacons laid their hands on me, the Holy Ghost came upon me, and again, it's traced right back to Paul. Well, you can't prove that, of course. The Catholics can't prove their ordinations going right back to Peter, and the Jews can't prove their ordinations going right back to Abraham. It sounds great, doesn't it? But can you prove it? No, you can't. Go to Matthew 26. So we have spoken about people such as Tommy Robinson. We've spoken about people such as Pam Geller. We've spoken about people such as Robert Spencer. All very interesting when it comes to Islam. All very interesting when it comes to the ills and problems of this world. And yet those people aren't saved. They don't preach the gospel because they're not saved. They can't offer you anything. And again... If I was a Muslim man and you came up to me in the street or if I watched one of these people's videos online and there are hundreds of their videos online, they can't offer me anything. If I've been praying all my life, if I've been a holy man all my life, if I've been a religious man all my life, such people can't offer me anything. And that's why I think they do some, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, such people do more harm than good. Matthew 26, Matthew uh, 26. Look at verse 6, please. Now when Jesus was in Bethany... In the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman, having an alabaster box of very precious ointments, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? Not just one apostle, or here, disciples, but disciples plural. For this ointment might have been sold for much, and given to the poor. What a thing to say. The Lord has spent a good part of three years, Preaching, traveling, suffering, denying himself. He's not far from death. 
and it says disciples, more than one, isn't happy or are not happy with what is going on, they start to murmur, as Moses uh, would experience back in the Old Testament. 10. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. That's how it should have been. This woman stepped forward like the lady from Proverbs 30, make that 31, and she's a good woman. She has humbled herself in the presence of the master and his men. And again, if you take the time to read the scriptures, I hate to say this, but as a guy, most of the men in scripture are worthless. It's the women who come come through nearly every single time. Yes, John, okay, he wouldn't abandon the Lord. But most of the men are worthless in the scripture. 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they commented with him for thirty pieces of silver. Thirty pieces of silver. The price of a female slave. What will you give me? The Catholic Church sold out the Lord many years ago. The Church of England, the Church of Scotland. We've seen many buildings in Scotland. The Methodists, the Baptists. They've all sold the Lord out. All of them for fame, power, I want to be in the House of Lords. I want to be in governments. I want to be close to the powers that be. There was a famous uh, Catholic priest, Patrick may remember his name, a Dominican or a Franciscan, I think, who was instrumental in converting many famous Brits to the Catholic Church. Anne Widdicombe would be one of them. Uh, John Gummer, Michael Seed, thank you. And Michael Seed, a very flamboyant, charismatic Catholic Franciscan. And also with Tony Blair. And uh, a lot of pictures online of this man. Seed at parties with his alcohol, martini, gin, whiskey. Talk about fitting in. Oh yeah, they love their robes. We've said this over the years, Patrick and I. Wouldn't it have been interesting to be a fly in the wall when Tony Blair became a Catholic? And he goes into the confessional booth and he makes his first confession to Cormac Connor O'Murphy, the previous uh, cardinal of Westminster, and he goes into the communal booth, pulls the curtain, or the priest will open it once somebody is in the confessional booth. Father, forgive me, it's been ten years since my last confession. That's how you normally begin it, but with him, Father, it's my first confession. So, Mr. Blair, how can I help you, my son? Well, I'm very much in favour of same-sex marriage. I'm very much in favour of civil unions. I think it's wonderful for a woman to crush the head of a baby in her womb and for the doctors and nurses to use a vacuum to suck the fetus out excuse me the baby no the fetus no the baby this play on words what is it a baby is it a fetus suck the baby no the fetus suck the fetus out of the mother's womb i'm all in favor of that and no i won't repent of that i'm also very much in favor of homosexuality and i'm not in favor no i am in favor i am in favor of female priests and the priest says well, i'm sorry mr blair this isn't the church for you No, that's not what he says. Welcome to our church. But I still believe in all those things, Father. I'm still in favour of abortion, homosexuality, homosexual marriage, and we want female priests. And no one says to Blair, this isn't the church for you. And he's against poverty, and yet he's got 20 million in the bank. 
It's ridiculous. That church are guilty of treachery. That church have sold them out. I would love it. I would love it if these priests or vicars would get up in their pulpits during a major event, maybe Remembrance Sunday or the royal wedding next month. I would love it. I would pay good money for it, for the Archbishop of Canterbury, the current weasel, Welby, to get up and start to preach the gospel. I'd love it. And really lay the Lord down. You're going to burn, you this, you that, and do what a real man of God would do. Wouldn't it be great to watch? And they're all sitting there, shuffling their feet, you know, undoing their buttons, getting really uncomfortable. It's not going to happen, of course. They too are guilty of treachery. And they too are like Judas Iscariot, plotting and planning on their cell phones, working out how much money they've made, what the interest is on their accounts, what they're going to be doing when they go home. A lot of these vicars' wives have their own businesses. They're into antiques and what have you. Jewelry. The whole thing is just so remote from Scripture. Look at verse 16. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. This was a man who knew the Lord, walked with the Lord, dined with the Lord, did miracles, saw things that we have never seen, and yet in spite of all that, like the devil back in the Old Testament, I'll be like the Most High, I will ascend up far, I'll be this, I'll be that, from Isaiah chapter 14, I think it is from memory. In spite of all that, it made no difference. And today you've got people that have gone to Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, uh, Wanish Seminary, and other religious seminaries around the world, who know Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and did you know something? They don't believe in any of it. They don't believe in any of it. They're going through a ritual. Most of these priests got into it when they were very young. Most of these priests are effeminate. Most of these priests went into the priesthood because of their mothers. In fact, we knew one priest who was in the priesthood for a long period of time. And the moments, the very moments, or maybe not the very moment, but very soon after his mother's death, took the collar off. And he said, that's it, I'm out of here. I'm going to Spain to open a bar. Lanzarote. Absolutely true story. I'm sick of it, he said. We knew another priest who was a notorious homosexual, had done pretty much every job you could think. Police, army, uh, AA, car insurance, RAC, breakdown cover, postman, training, horses, this and that. Became a priest, passed the seven-year course and contracted HIV. It became AIDS. And down the line, he just became more and more detached from his church, wanted to leave his church, but never quite left his church. Patrick sent tracts to him, witnessed to him, and during one phone call, after uh, some tracts had been sent to this dying priest, dying of AIDS, this guy didn't have much time to live. He had legions all over him. He was in a right state. White hair, long fingernails like Howard Hughes, would die on the floor in Bristol for a week before he was found. Just, I mean, disgusting. And one day... Patrick sent some tracts to this priest that we had known for a long time. And he said, you must be mad in reference to the tracts. You must have lost your mind. Holy Mother Church, etc., etc., etc. And I thought, if that's your church, or if that's what your church has done for you, you can keep it. And that man died, had a Catholic uh, burial. But he wasn't really a believer. He once said, it's all insurance. I cover my bets. A bit like politicians, they entrepreneurs give money to different groups of politicians, like Sinatra, he'd give money to the Democrats, the Republicans, and not just him, 
but other well-known people, to keep him with all sides. My man always wins. Richard Branson did that back in 1997. He gave money to the Conservative Party. He gave money to the Labour Party. And he waited for the phone to ring. And he waited for the phone to ring. Who's going to win? It's now midnight. It's now half past 12. Breaking news. Labour have won. And he phoned up Tony Blair. Hi, Tony. Congratulations. I'm very happy to see you've just won uh, the 1997 election. It could have been John Major. Hi, John. I'm very happy to see you've just won the, the uh, general election. I'll be down to the party in 10 minutes' time. He phoned Tony Blair, and Blair said, come on down. We're meeting in wherever it was in London. And Richard Branson he gave a million to Labour, a million to the Conservatives, covered both sides, went down to the party, and his guy won. And you think, it's all a joke, and the answer would be, yes, it is absolutely all a joke. These people are all well-to-do uh, entrepreneurs, wouldn't give you and I... Uh, the time of day, and yet tragically many people follow them because they see they are successful. Look at verse 20 from Matthew 26. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And yet most of Christendom today is betraying the Lord. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Now I like that. There's a sense of humility there. Is it I? I won't kid myself. I'm sure I've betrayed the Lord over the years in different ways. I know that I, I know, I know who I am. I know what I am. I'm not one of those pious guys who goes around dressed up and pretends that I don't sin like Paul Washer or Todd Friel. You know, what you see with me is what you get. But unfortunately, what you see on television and what you see on the news is not always what you get. 23. And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish... The same shall betray me. Now look at 24. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Now I can't really understand that. I know that the Lord sees the beginning from the end. And I know that man has a free will. And I know that man is, uh, is limited. And God is not. God is sovereign. A man is not. And yet somehow these two things are going to come together. Somehow the emphasis or the responsibility, the consequences are going to be put on the shoulders of Judas Iscariot. Going back to the Psalms from, I think it was Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, which made the case that the family, the wife and children of Judas would suffer the consequences, the terrible consequences for what would come 25. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Yes, it is you, Judas, and this is going to pay me because I loved you. I loved you unto the end. It says from John 17, He loved his own unto the end. That would include Judas, but for the sake of the scripture, one of you will betray me. We know from Second Peter 2 1 how even those that reject him, false prophets and teachers, have still had their sins covered by the blood of Christ. Now, we don't really understand that, because most of the world, according to the Bible, are going to go to hell. But from the point of heaven, or from God's standpoint, he has made it possible to save all people. So these verses are leading up to something catastrophic about to take place, something which I don't think Peter ever thought would happen, or John, or James, or some of the women, like Mary Magdalene, a very remarkable woman, the 
mother of Zebedee's children, another remarkable woman, and in the New Testament, people such as Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila, Lydia. And this goes back to the reality that men, for the most part, in the scripture, are not worth tuppence. Whereas the women do step forward time after time and put the men to shame. And yet saying that, we are living in a generation where men are being put down, demoted, and treated in a way which you couldn't have imagined many years ago. A couple of very short stories and I'll close. The awful subject of suicide never leaves us. If you read the papers on a regular basis, or if you have any interest in what goes on in this fallen world, you know that people are killing themselves all of the time. Probably the most, the most infamous murder-suicide uh, during World War II took place in 1945, when Joseph Goebbels shot his wife after she had poisoned her children, like six children, before shooting himself. That was an awful story, an awful event. You ask yourself, was it not possible for that family to have escaped? And the answer obviously was no. Their world revolved around the Fuhrer. He was their God. He was their all. A bit like that story when Joseph Stalin died and a man walked past the Kremlin and he could see that the light bulb was switched off. And he said, why is uh, the light bulb switched off? Is Uncle Joe or Comrade Stalin not working tonight? And he said, no, he's just died. And this man was crying, and he said, oh, we've lost a wonderful man. How will uh, Mother Russia survive? He had no idea what was going on. That light bulb was a prop. It was a propaganda prop to make people think that Stalin was working all hours of the night. The Russians had no idea what was going on. And, of course, you know what happens. Stalin died. He was replaced. But people in Russia, people in the bunker, 1945, were greatly pained and grieved to learn that their beloved leader had died. And when Hitler shot himself, suicide, and shot his long-term mistress wife, and shot his beloved dog, not before poisoning, his beloved dog, Blondie, the Goebbels decided to take their own lives. And within an hour, a group of people were dead and heading to hell forever. Awful news came out a few months ago concerning the murder-suicide of Peter Rutman Jr. And I've been thinking about Peter Rutman Jr. for a while now. I was friends with him on Facebook, had no real correspondence with him, but we were Facebook friends. And to my shock, one morning, I discovered that Peter Rutman Jr. had killed himself and had killed his sons, his two sons, a triple suicide murder. And I thought to myself, what was the purpose for it? Why would it happen? How could you justify that? And people leaving comments, not straight away. This took a while uh, for this story to break. I was quite surprised how slow this story took to break. And eventually people leaving comments on videos about Rutman's murder-suicide. And they were saying, oh, this is terrible. It's all the old man's fault, like Rutman Sr., which I thought was completely unjustified to say that. And how could he do that? Why would he do that? Etc., etc., etc. No saved man would take his own life. And yet they forget that uh, Samson would do that. But here's the thing. Peter Rutman Jr. had been raised in a single-parent family. Going back to my statistics, that if you are raised in a single-parent environment, there's a 35% chance that you will run away, have learning difficulties, or become a rapist, end up in prison for crimes, 
And again, 65% of people in jail are there because they are from single-parent families. And therefore, it's worth reminding ourselves that one of the reasons why Rutman Jr. possibly took his own life, although this doesn't justify it, but one of the reasons why he, did, why he took his own life will be because of the environment that he was raised in. His parents divorced, and him, he along with his four other siblings, saw the damage, the pain and the suffering that uh, resulted in losing their mother due to Rutman's second marriage breaking down. And therefore, like most people, he had his breaking point, took his own life, and unfortunately decided to kill his own children. Now, I don't justify that. I won't justify that. I won't condone it. I'm just trying to understand it and offer some explanation as to why that took place. On top of that, it may be that he couldn't live up to his father's image. His father was this very larger-than-life preacher, a prolific writer, and maybe in the back of Rutman Jr.'s mind, he thought, I'm not on the same page as my father. I'm 55, 56. I have nothing to show for my life. I'm not a soul winner. I'm not doing anything for the Lord. And maybe that, on top of his breakdown of his marriage and the real reality that his sons would move states states with their mother, she may remarry. And he thought to himself, I can't handle that. I went through it myself with my parents breaking up and therefore took his own life. I don't know why or how to explain that apart from just that very um, explanation or breakdown or uh, statement I just made going back to what he was uh, experiencing as a boy growing up and it all came on top for him and tragically he took his own life. I would like to think that his sons were saved. I'm not going to sit here and be smug or sanctimonious and suggest that he wasn't saved. I don't know the man. I didn't know the man personally but I know one thing that his father said all of his children were saved and I would think his father knew more about his children than we do and just because he got into a difficult situation, just because his marriage broke down, just because his uh, entire world collapsed uh, doesn't mean that he wasn't saved to begin with. So what we've been able to cover this morning, by the grace of God, is a look at the man Judas, what he was uh, privileged to have seen and enjoyed, like Rutman Jr., and yet in spite of that, went off the rails. Of course, when Judas betrayed the Lord, that was just one person selling out another person. When Rutman Jr. snapped... Not only did he destroy himself, he destroyed his sons, he also destroyed his ex-wife and also Rutman Jr.'s family. I would suggest probably 10, 15 people have suffered as a result of that situation. Whereas when the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, based on foreknowledge, going back to the Old Testament, only Christ suffered. Of course, that's why he was born. He came to suffer and die for our sins. With the murder-suicide of the Goebbels family, that finished off that line. And when Hitler and uh, Eva Braun died, that also finished off that line. We call that bad blood. And yet, nonetheless, they're still humans. They were still humans, still made in the image of God. Christ still loved them, died for them, and yet they didn't want to receive Christ. They would reject Christ, and as a result, uh, pay the consequences for dying without Christ. January this year saw the sudden, shocking, and suspicious death of the lead singer of the Cranberries group, a lady called Dolores. She died, no more than 50 years of age, I think she's about 46. At the height of her career, she was a very powerful, a very successful artist. I remember during the 90s, when they were at their peak, enjoying a lot of their music, number one hits, albums sold very well, travelled the globe, 
But this troubled Catholic artist never got over the uh, problem of depression, child abuse and other issues. And in a London hotel this past January, she was found dead. And those in the know, those that were fans of her band, believed it was suicide. All of her money couldn't help her. Her fame could not help her. Her religion could not help her. Back in the 1990s, a scandal broke in America, which made world news concerning Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. And again, I remember that very well at the time. A young intern from Beverly Hills found herself at the capital city, in the capital city, Washington, D.C., enjoying an internship at the White House. Her parents were very well-to-do, middle-class people. I think her mother was a writer, her father was a doctor. And they got young Monica, two or three years older than Chelsea Clinton, into the White House as an unpaid intern, and she loved it. As she first arrived at the White House, she was reading a book written by one of Bill's former mistresses, And she was very intrigued by this woman and Bill Clinton's indiscretions. A relationship uh, quickly took place. And what isn't so easily or so well known is the fact that Monica pursued Bill, not the other way around. And once she had Bill, she wanted to retain him. Now, without getting into all the nitty gritty and the sort of details, not particularly interested in that. That also comes under the subject of treachery. Not necessarily from Bill to uh, Hillary as most people would think, because Bill and Hillary's relationship was an open one, had been for some 20 years. But what intrigues me is how Monica was betrayed twice. First and foremost, by Linda Tripp. Linda Tripp was her friend at the Pentagon. They worked very closely together. And Linda Tripp was a man-hater, and she betrayed Monica. She betrayed her the first way by recording their conversations, by attempting to sell their recordings to the media, And finally, by divulging and sharing these recordings with the FBI. The FBI interviewed Monica, and they said this, unless you come clean about what has been going on, you'll get 27 years in jail, as were your mother. And that, according to Monica's autobiography, almost resulted in her wanting to commit suicide. Well, of course, they were bluffing. They really wanted to go after Bill, and she had to come clean about the relationship and was able to do so, and that allowed her to escape a potential 27 years in jail. But she was betrayed. She was betrayed by Tripp. She thought Tripp was her friend, and she wasn't. She was also betrayed by Bill's private secretary, a black American woman whose name escapes me, and her job was to protect the president at all costs. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, that the sisters would all come together and protect one of their own? Not at all. When news broke that Monica two, three years older than Chelsea, Bill and Hillary's only child. You would have thought when news broke of their relationship that the sisters would come to Monica's aid, right? No, they came to Bill's aid and they froze Monica out. They transferred her from the White House to the Pentagon and she was there until she was fired. Well, don't worry, she bounced back many years afterwards. She now sells designer handbags and she's doing very well for herself. And of course, Bill, well, we all know about Bill, don't we? But that's a picture of treachery. It wasn't just Bill being unfaithful towards uh, Hillary. Hillary was unfaithful to Bill. It was an open uh, open marriage. But what always intrigues me is when I hear unsaved people using biblical terms, showing disgust and shock. They don't believe in the Bible. They're not 
God-fearing people, do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they have the audacity to use our Holy Bible. We've spoken about South Africa, and we've spoken about uh, the ANC, we've spoken about Africa's uh, demise. Many children are being raised by children in South Africa because their mothers, their fathers, their grandparents have all died of AIDS. Uncles and aunts, they've all died of AIDS. What did Mandela do for those people? Nothing. Wasn't it Mandela's son who died of AIDS? I believe it was. And he came into power. He did nothing. Archbishop Desmond Tutu was desperately trying to unite South Africa, not his job. And he was part of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And on one occasion, the late Winnie Mandela was summoned to appear at such an event, 1994-1995. And, of course, she had the infamous football team who killed young Swampy, Stompy, Stompy, excuse me, young Stompy, a very brutal murder which took place in her home. And Winnie Mandela, the beloved of the left, was summoned to this Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And Desmond Tutu was pleading with Winnie. He was begging Winnie, but just say you're sorry. Please just show some contrition. At least allow us to move on. And like Myra Hinley was unrepentant, unremorseful, like an old IRA trooper, while we were fighting for the cause, the ends justify the means, a good old Jesuit term. We thought it was okay to put nail bombs in train stations and this and there, here and there. And just for the record, not all black people in South Africa were pro the ANC. Many black people were not pro the ANC. And that's one of the reasons why Amnesty International, a left-wing secular group in the UK, refused to support the ANC. They were terrorists. But I'm going to say this, that Tutu is a traitor. Tutu is a traitor. He's a traitor because, number one, he is an an Anglican archbishop. I believe his daughter is a lesbian minister. He won't preach the gospel. He won't call out the ANC for what they are, a Marxist, atheist group, destroying their own country. And now the ANC, like I said last time, are wanting to purchase property all over uh, South Africa, owned by black people, white people, and allow the state or the state will now own such properties. He won't call out that. He won't preach against sin. He won't come out against AIDS. He won't come out against immorality. He's a hypocrite. He's a traitor. Matthew 26, Matthew 26, look at verse 20, please. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve, the master and his men. This, of course, is the last supper. Look at 21. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Could be Tutu. It could be Linda Tripp. It could be Winnie Mandela. It could be any one of us sitting around this table this morning. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. So once again, you've got the Lord's sovereignty You've got the free will of man, and the Lord will hold mankind accountable. You can't say, the Lord made me do it. You can't say, the devil made me do it. Look at 34. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. They were convinced that they wouldn't be the ones or the one, to sell out the Lord. 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And he saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. 
And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. So at his lowest points, and of course this is the Son of Man, he wants his closest apostles, his closest friends to stay with him, to pray with him. But like the good and the great, they are weak. Going back to the two natures in the believer, of the believer. It does fascinate me when I meet people on the streets. And yesterday we were in Sterling and a man came over to us and he said this. He said, well, I believe in once saved. You can lose your salvation. And I believe in the post-tribulational rapture. And I said to him, what is the point of a post-tribulational rapture? We've already been justified. We can't be any more justified. And he said to me, well, I believe it's necessary for the church to go through the tribulation to be tested. I thought, tested for what? If man's best state is altogether vanity, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There isn't a just man on the face of the earth. Why callest thou me good? Don't bother testing me. If I'm going to be tested, I'm going to fail. And again, if my salvation is dependent upon me, then I won't bother getting saved. 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Great picture, of course, of submission. Jump down to verse 45. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Hands of sinners, the Jewish leaders, Pilate's, of course, but don't forget Judas Iscariot. 46. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. I can't really imagine what this must have felt like. The Lord knew, of course, what was going to happen. He was never taken by surprise. You can imagine the adrenaline pumping in the veins, the blood from Judas Iscariot. He's known Jesus Christ for three and a half years. He's seen Jesus Christ for three and a half years. He has prayed and sung hymns with the apostles. He's seen the miracles. He's done the miracles. That gets overlooked sometimes. He has done he did the miracles, and yet now his adrenaline is pumping. He is with the leaders from the temple, and they are ready to move. Look at 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast, the kiss of death. I'm going to kiss the Son of Man, and when I kiss the Son of Man, grab him. And of course, this is what we would refer to as premeditated. Judas had been scheming, planning, and plotting. Was he ever an atheist? Was he an atheist? Who knows? It is fair to say that radical atheists can destroy people, and I think one of the reasons why Megan Phelps fell was due to radical atheists. They were able to infiltrate the Calvin clan, the Calvin cult that she was raised in. And now, like I say, she is doing the rounds, mocking the Lord Jesus Christ, attacking the Bible, unable or unwilling to correctly exegete Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 49. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Greetings, Master. A kiss, a sign, a sellout, a traitor. If you think of the 1950s, the 1960s, Two British agents working for MI5, MI6, had been selling Britain out for many years. One of those men, a guy called Burgess, had been, McLean had been lined up to be head 
of the MI5, the Internal Security Service of the UK. He was a good old Eton boy, Cambridge, as they say, or Oxbridge, to be precise. And he was lined up to be the head of MI5. He was a traitor. He had been selling Britain out for many years, selling secrets to the Russians for many years. And incredibly, he was able to leave the UK, flee the UK to Russia, where he died back in the 1990s, I think it was. But that came as a great shock. That traitor sold out Britain to Russia. Around 10 years ago, a lady called Mrs Norwood made the news. At the time, she was around 90. And Mrs Norwood had lived in seclusion for a long period of time, not particularly well known to anybody, until one day news broke that Norwood had also been a traitor. And apparently Norwood had been working for the Ministry of Defence during the Cold War and was selling secrets to the Russians. And due to Norwood's treachery, she was able to give secrets to the Russians, which allowed them to put their nuclear bomb together. When that story broke, a good, maybe more than 10 years ago now, perhaps 15 years ago, I thought to myself this, why isn't she being arrested? I don't care how old she is. Put her before the courts. Let the courts decide what to do with her. But of course it didn't happen. It was deemed she was too old. But she was a traitor. She sold Britain out to the Russians and that allowed the Russians to get the bomb, thanks to Mrs Norwood and McLean and Burgess also and Philby also gave secrets to the Russians, which allowed them to know even more about what is going on in the UK. Look at verse 50, please. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Friend, I lay my life down for my friends. He left his own unto the end. This is a great picture. Judas is referred to as a friend, not an enemy. Christ died for his friends and also his enemies. Unlimited atonement. And it going back to the chat from Sterling yesterday, post-tribulational, once saved, you can be lost. And it was said some years ago by Walter Martin that if we, the body of Christ, get the nature of God wrong, we get everything else wrong. There's so much truth in that. If you get the nature of God wrong, you get salvation wrong, you get the scripture wrong, you get eschatology wrong, you might just pack up and go home. And many people now are coming out against the Trinity, uh, the scripture, salvation. And once you get the nature of God wrong... You're finished. You can't offer anyone anything. 51. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Simon Peter, of course, 52. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Those found guilty of treachery uh, up until recent years were almost always executed. Capital punishment followed those guilty of treachery. That's why Charles I was beheaded. And that's one of the reasons why Mary, Queen of Scots, was beheaded. She was plotting and planning to overthrow Elizabeth. And Cecil and Walsingham were able to discover secret notes from Mary to her Catholic fundamentalist uh, supporters. And when they challenged her with the evidence, as we say in the UK, they had a banged to rights. And she was put before... A court, she was found guilty, she was beheaded, but before they beheaded her, she had a little dog that was not far from where she was about to be executed, and this dog was hiding behind her skirt, her dress, I should say, and when they put her head on the block, and the axe was about to fall, the wig came off the head, and the hangman 
had a shot when he went to pull the head up, which is what they did in the day, like David did with Goliath. And the wig came off and the head fell down and rolled away from the body. True story. Mary had lost a lot of hair. She was wearing a wig. And when it came to her execution, somebody once said she had the last laugh, possibly. People were shocked, but some were also laughing when they saw her head rolling. She would later be put back together. James would order his mother to be buried at Westminster Abbey, like Cromwell would order the head of Charles I to be sewn back on his head. People do criticise James for his involvement, or his lack of involvement, with his mother's detention, but it's worth reminding ourselves that, number one, he was not uh, of age, shall we say, around that time. He was still in Scotland around that time. He had no leverage, he had no uh, clout or authority over London. Elizabeth would fund his uh, Scottish kingdom. She gave him 4000 a year, so he had to be very careful. As I say, never bite the hand that feeds you. But verse 52 does uphold capital punishment, something which we have lost today. 53, think as thou that, I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. 12 legions of angels. Judas is referred to as a devil. And when things go wrong on a major scale, like if you lived in South Africa during the dark days when the ANC were blowing places up, killing people, or if you live in Venezuela today, or Cuba, or even Egypt. We've spoken about Egypt over the last little while. When things go wrong and people start to suffer, I mean terribly, then there's a chance that there are unclean spirits that are indwelling such people, tempting such people. 54. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it thus must be? Well, of course. The Lord Jesus Christ would say time after time how the scripture cannot be broken. The word of God is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's a great promise. But unfortunately, most people today, most religious people today, are not actually following the scriptures. They are following their tradition. King James is also guilty of that. King James was a Calvinist, a moderate one, but he was a Calvinist. And King James was very much into church tradition, like most Calvinists are. Was he saved, you ask me? I really don't know. I don't know if he was saved or not. I like to give people the benefits of the doubts. I hate judging people's salvation. I just don't know. But when it comes to his conduct, when it comes to how he performed as a king, let's say the jury is still out. 27.3, Matthew 27.3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. Innocent blood? I'm not innocent. We're not innocent. And this goes back to the nonsensical doctrine of once saved, you can lose your salvation. And I wonder, when Dolores was about to take her own life, if she repented herself, but at that stage the damage was done, Maybe she had taken too many paracetamols. We don't know. I wonder when Peter Ruttman shot his two sons if he started to repent himself, but by that stage the damage was done. We never know. I wonder when Joseph Goebbels shot his wife after she had poisoned her children if he repented himself, but by that stage it was too far gone. No way back. Judas betrayed him, repented himself, was grieved, was upset, but again there are two types of repentance in Scripture. There's the repentance, which is sorry for what you've done and sorry for who you are. And also there is repentance in the sense of being sorry for being caught 
I wish I hadn't been caught. I wish I'd been more careful. Brought again the 30 pieces of silver. He's trying to make amends to the chief priests and elders. Priests. And people think that priests are always good and godly. Not, not much. Today, George Pell finds himself in a court in Melbourne, Australia. And George Pell, at the height of his career, Catholic cardinal, a good old Catholic cardinal, at the height of his power, was head of the Vatican Bank. And he's now before an Australian court, being prosecuted for sexual abuse, covering up sexual abuse. Nothing new, of course. What does intrigue me, as far as George Pell, who's also a traitor, abusing all those children, what does intrigue me is why he went back to Australia. He has a Vatican passport, and as a Vatican subject, it would have been almost impossible for Australia to extradite him uh, from Rome back to Melbourne. Uh, But he's back in Australia and he's facing the music, and if convicted, could get 15 years in jail. I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And they said, what is that to us? We don't care about that. We don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Some people say that Jesus Christ is God the Father. Some people say that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel. Some people say that Jesus Christ is Lucifer's brother. Some people say that Jesus Christ is just a prophet, and Muhammad is more superior. What is that to us? See thou to that. We don't care about that. We have no qualms about what is going on. Verse 5, And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and departed, and went and hanged himself. So suicide can come in many different forms. I would imagine that the easiest, the most convenient form of suicide uh, would be to take tablets. I hate stories of people throwing themselves under trains and destroying people's lives. We knew a man years ago who was a very tortured man and he was one of two brothers and his greatest fear was that one day he may become homeless. He had learning difficulties, emotional difficulties obviously and one day this man went missing. The police were called and it turned out he had cycled onto a railway track, laid down and the train came, went over him and killed him. And of course not only was he dead obviously but not only did his parents lose their son and their lives were destroyed obviously but so too with the train driver i mean how do you how do you come back from that how do you return from work and say hey hey darling how was your day at work well it was pretty rough i killed a man at 70 miles an hour on a railway line outside of london it's a very selfish thing to do as far as judas was concerned he was grieved he was torn to pieces something went wrong we never know uh, this side of heaven what was going through his mind. I mean, to plan and plot to sell out the Son of Man, to take money for the sale, the betrayal of the Son of Man, and then have a change of heart halfway through it to try and stop what was about to take place seems somewhat bizarre. I mean, what do you think they're going to do? Shake his hand? Give him a medal? And yet, by this stage, it's too little, too late, and he realizes that there's no way back, and he leaves the temple and goes and hangs himself. Six. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because it is a price of blood. Parasites. That's the term we get for uh, Pharisees, real Pharisees. They're so religious, so pious. On the one hand, they are keeping the law. Over in John, it says they wouldn't uh, go into uh, Pilate's hall for fear of desecration. And yet they just sold out the Son of Man, the innocent Son of God. And here they are fearful of breaking the law and yet they've just broken the lawgiver 
just killed, they've just assassinated, they've just murdered, they've sold out the lawgiver. And they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. So these verses once again point to the devastation, the awful reality of people who are unable to go on. People that have their breaking point like Dolores, like Ruckman Jr., or the uh, flip side to that will be those that are guilty of treachery, like Tutu, church leaders who should know better, church leaders who are well-educated, church people who, let's be quite honest, if they called for a press gathering or a press conference, the media would turn out in numbers, listen to uh, such people speaking about whatever they want to speak about, preaching the gospel, and get quite, you know, quite, a, quite a good welcome, or at least the world would turn up, the world would listen. They have access to the cameras, and yet every uh, Christmas the Pope speaks to the media, says nothing. The Archbishop of Canterbury speaks to the media, says nothing. And most people just fall asleep. Nine. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Jesus Christ is speaking there. Not appointed him, appointed me. He knew what was going on. He came to die for the sins of the world. We can approach this one of two ways. We can sympathize with the Lord. We can be appreciative, certainly appreciative of what he has done for us. But at the same time, he came to die for the sins of the world. And yet saying all of that, he's still going to hold Judas accountable. He's still going to hold Pilate's and Caiaphas and Herod accountable. This is the paradox of scripture, of course. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Thomas is referred to as the great doubter. Elsewhere, the apostles would pray to the Lord, ask the Lord to help their unbelief. Nothing wrong with that. But here you got some doubting, because they are in shock. The Saviour has died unexpectedly. He told them many times, and yet when push came to shove, they weren't able to grasp it. They are in shock. Post-traumatic stress, I think they call it, or post-traumatic disorder. 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So, a wonderful conclusion to the Gospel of Matthew. And you've seen Judas Iscariot, you've seen the good and the great, you've seen people breaking. You've also seen different levels of treachery from uh, those of the cloth, as they are referred to. You've seen people in uh, positions of power, uh, secular power, and also uh, apostate Christendom, selling out the Lord. People could do so much more. Wouldn't it have been great if George Pell had come out this morning, walked to the cameras and said, you better all repent. You know, the end is near. The Lord is angry with the wicked every day and just preach the gospel, or come out and say, I am sorry for abusing all those children, I am sorry for covering up the sins of the cardinals, I am ashamed of myself, the Pope made me do it, the church fathers made me do it, I am following doctrine, going back to the second century, and he absolutely is. Canon law makes it very clear that the Pope, the papacy, must be protected at all costs. 
The British Prime Minister, one of his titles is the First Lord of the Treasury, and as the First Lord of the Treasury, his job is to defend the royal family at all costs. It makes no difference if they are communists, fascists, liars, thieves, murderers, paedophiles. He has to protect them at all costs. Going back to Clinton's private secretary, her job was to protect Bill Clinton at all costs. It made no difference if Monica did 27 years, 47 years, or if her mother did 57 years in jail. It made no difference. It made no difference that she was 25 years younger than Bill Her purpose was to protect the president at all costs. And people within his circle came together to defend Bill Clinton. And of course, go back to the 1980s when Hillary Clinton was a lawyer defending that child rapist. And she was heard on tape laughing. Uh, Very proud of herself for getting that monster uh, off the charges, avoiding a prison sentence. Uh, Of course, we would call such a marriage of convenience. So treachery comes in many different ways. From our perspective, we are concerned when it comes from a religious perspective. We are grieved when so-called Christians, whether Catholic or Anglican or fundamentalist or evangelical, uh, remain silent. And I think of Desmond Tutu. I think of Ian Paisley. I think of Ian Paisley when he became First Minister of Northern Ireland He would travel to Washington two or three times as the first minister, meet at the time uh, George Bush, uh, who was the president, 2007, 2008. Yeah, George Bush, and never preached the gospel. The media turned up. Yes, you get sound bites from him. Of course you would. And he made that very great statement that uh, if you sin in public, you must repent in public. I like that. But apart from that, he never... Preached the gospel through CNN, CBS, Fox News, Sky News, the BBC. By that stage, he was the statesman. He was the first minister of Northern Ireland. And I'll tell you something else. You won't find anybody like him ever in power again. He had many opportunities, but by the time of becoming first minister in mid-2000s, he was more interested in politics than the word of God. And unfortunately, like I say, he decided to... Uh, refrain from preaching the gospel and one final thought what was of interest to me uh, was when Paisley died Martin McGuinness the former Catholic IRA quartermaster went to Paisley's funeral but when McGuinness died Paisley Jr Protestant orange man went to McGuinness's Catholic funeral interesting isn't it and I would have thought that wouldn't have happened I would have thought that being from Northern Ireland being raised in a strong, strict Presbyterian denomination. They couldn't have been paid. You couldn't pay me to go to a Catholic funeral. But, of course, this is the compromise. And, again, it's another pitch of treachery, but from that uh, perspective on a more grander scale. Judas Iscariot, 13 letters. And, of course, 13, if you know anything about the occult, is an interesting number. Friday the 13th. The spirit that was behind Judas and inside of Judas was clearly Satan. And therefore, when you think of John chapter 6, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, and one of you is a devil, I would simply say this, that in the context, the Lord is referring to the spirit that was inside Judas and also working behind Judas. Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, 
And by the grace of God, last time we were able to finish profiling Judas Iscariot uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. And therefore, uh, make that Mark chapter 3, excuse me. Uh, Mark chapter 3. Scripture with Scripture gives us the cross-reference to the naming of the apostles. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Look at verse uh, 13, please. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he ordained twelve, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. And he surnamed them Bonegus, which is a sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanites, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house. So once again, you've got a group of men, at least three groups here. Our brothers, Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, are biological brothers. And from verse 13, he goes up into a mountain, and Luke tells you he prayed all night. 14, he ordains them. On top of that, he gives them power to preach, latter end of verse 14. He gives them power to heal, verse 15, sicknesses, to cast out devils. And again, three groups of biological brothers. And also note verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, semicolon. And he surnamed them Boinagus, or Bonagus, which is the sons of thunder. It's important that we note this because it wasn't just Simon Peter who got a new name. So too did these sons of Zebedee, Andrew and Philip, uh, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. Now James, son of Alphaeus, like I say, is linked in to or linked in with Matthew, the Levite. But Thaddeus, I believe, is another term for Judas or Jude. There are two Judes in Scripture, and sometimes this causes confusion. And the best way to handle Jude, who could quite likely be the Lord's half brother who quite likely wrote the epistle of Jude. Jude has three names. Thaddeus, and I think from Matthew. Uh, let's go back to Matthew very quickly. Labius, or Lebius, I should say Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus. So Lebius, Jude, Thaddeus. That's the only way to explain these uh, lists of apostles. And I spent years reading the four Gospels trying to work out how to deal with Jude. And where he fits into it. And all I can suggest is Matthew 10, 3. You've got Labius or Lebius, Thaddeus. And if you think of Jude, uh, also mentioned in the Gospel of John, the best way to handle that is to suggest, uh, and I will suggest this just for the record, that he had three names. First name, middle name, and of course a surname. And once again, Mark chapter 3 follows Matthew 10 very clearly. And it starts with Peter at the beginning, and it ends with Judas right at the end. And Judas Iscariot, 13 letters to his infamous name, which also betrayed him, sold him out, and they went into an house. I can't think of anyone anywhere at any time who has ever called their son Judas. If you go to Central America, South America, if you go to Mexico, you'll meet many Jesuses, but you won't meet many Judases, because even the world know that there's something contaminated with the name Judas, of course Judah, back in Genesis, was a bad boy. Judah, Jude, and Judas, it's all part of the same word, of course. But, of course, you've got two Judes in the New Testament. You've got one good, 
being the Lord's half-brother, and you got one bad. So Mark chapter 3 sets the context for our continual look at Judas Iscariot, and like we've been saying, he is the most infamous human traitor that the world has ever known. If you meet someone, or if you cross someone, or if you stab someone in the back, they say, you are a Judas. And of course, you know exactly what they mean. Mark chapter 6, let's keep moving on. Mark uh, chapter 6, Mark chapter 6. Uh, Look at verse 12, please. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And that's just what we do. Today we went to Perth, a city around 90 minutes from Edinburgh, a rundown city, a poor city. And within five uh, five minutes of arriving, just five minutes, just finished eating my sandwich. Uh, Two buskers walked over to me. One was um, making crude remarks looking for a confrontation, as they do. I don't know what it is about buskers, but when we come into contact with them, it always ends in an argument of some kind. And he was saying how all religion was evil. He kept repeating himself, and I walked over to him, and I said, you mean like Joseph Stalin? You mean like Fidel Castro? You mean like uh, Mao Zedong? They killed millions, and we went back and forth. He said, I hate you people, referring to our little group of five. You people are forcing your views on everyone. And then five minutes later, he mics himself up and starts singing his crude and corny protest songs from 1960s. And he's forcing his thoughts on us. We had to listen to his repertoire, quote unquote, for around 50 minutes until the police arrived. And by the uh, the grace of God, he moved on. But we preach that men should repent, which simply means to have a changed mind, to do an about turn. And when you preach that men should repent, you should expect some pushback. We've spoken already about suicide. We've spoken about people who hit rock bottom. And many times, satanic oppression will cause you not to do right and not to preach right. And I've listened to many people, far too many people, over the years from the religious realm who come along and they start uh, their ministries. And they are very careful what they say. And just before we sat down to have our meal, we spoke about a well-known Israeli Christian And I don't know much about the man, so I won't name him. I don't want to get uh, ahead of myself. I don't want to unfairly uh, reprimand him or critique him. But what I can gauge from people's thoughts about him is that he sits on the fence. Not only him, but other well-known Bible uh, preachers. They're very careful what they say because they don't want to be controversial. And as one of our group quite rightly said, nor do they want to lose money. 6.13. And they cast out many devils. And anointed with oil, many that were sick, and healed them. Now, I love this, and I like to challenge people every so often. I like to to challenge those that hold to the Jewish apostolic sign gifts to prove that they have the ability to do wonderful things. What you see on television or what you see on camera most of the time is a fake appearance. It's not the real thing. It's what we call a front. They're putting on a front. Most politicians in the UK have what's called media training. If you are in the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, or the Democrats, or the Republicans, they will train you. I think, I think the term was called, uh, the, uh, the term was used, uh, charm school, I think you mentioned, concerning Zuckerberg from Facebook. He went to charm school to spruce up his image, to give him the people skills that he needed when he went before the Congress uh, quite recently. And I was reading the paper tonight that he's been summoned to appear in London at the Common Select Committee. Let's watch that with great interest. But British and American and probably Spanish and Singaporean and other uh, professional politicians are trained before they go before the cameras. They're trained how to sit, 
They're trained how to smile. They're trained how not to answer your questions, to comb your hair, to look very nice on camera. And they are trained how to deal with situations, very difficult situations. And unfortunately, most people are very slick. Most Christians are very slick when it comes to what they don't want to say. But satanic oppression can quite easily cause you to become deflated, cause you to be careful with your words, not to cause offence. And that's one of the reasons why the body of Christ is in such a sorry state. But the apostles and some of their associates were able to do miracles. And I wish we could. I really wish we could. We see people on the streets. We speak to homeless people. And we sometimes pray with those people. They want us to pray with them and for them. But we are powerless. I don't mind saying that. We are powerless in and of ourselves. We can't cast out devils or demons. I've watched far too many people, far too many people over the years, uh, putting up videos. I think of David Lynn, who came over from Canada, and he's preaching around the UK, and he went to Glastonbury, and used a term that I wouldn't think about using, even in private. I wouldn't even use a term on microphone. And he used it because he was being mocked by an unsaved man, and he felt somewhat ashamed or embarrassed that he was being mocked, and he used an an uncouth, an unacceptable word, um on camera but I've watched him doing healings on camera and I watched him outside uh, the Houses of Parliament uh, praying over some person for four or five minutes it made no difference I've seen him in churches doing the same sort of a thing it makes no difference they're putting on a show but what's really sad is that they think they can do something that they can't do well the apostles would be equipped and that would uh, that would include Judas Iscariot the man with 13 letters in his name, cast out many devils and anointed uh, with oil, many that were sick and healed them. No failures. Now, if you think that uh, the sign gifts are still for today, well, let me say this. Every time you lay hands on anyone, anywhere, at any time, based on the word of God, a healing should follow. You won't have somebody come back saying, well, I was okay for five or six hours, but I don't feel particularly well now. The moment an apostle would lay their hands on you, including... Judas Iscariot, you should have been healed without any doubt. Go to Mark chapter 8. Let's keep moving on. Mark chapter 8. Scripture with scripture. Mark chapter 8. Look at verse 34, if you will. And when he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. This is a very controversial paradox in scripture, and of course you know exactly what the Lord is speaking about, death in a nutshell. As somebody once said, if you saw a man going out of Jerusalem with a cross, you knew that he wasn't coming back. It was a one-way ticket out of Jerusalem, and he would find himself nailed to that cross, and he wasn't going to come down off that cross, not until he'd pay for the sins of the world. 36, what should it profit a man? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. And temporarily Judas was, can I suggest, the most wealthy man in Jerusalem. He had 30 pieces of silver, not a lot of money really, but for a period of time he must have felt pretty uh, pleased with himself. He sold the Lord out for 30 pieces of silver. The bishops in the House of Lords sell the Lord out for 300 pounds every time they go into the Lords. And I'm more critical of what they don't say than what they do say. They will speak out, as I say, about environmental affairs, alleviating poverty, droughts around the world, so on and so forth, but you won't get much out of them when it comes to the Word of God. You won't ever hear them going on camera and speaking out uh, speaking out against Islam, Catholicism, 
or the LGBT community. 37. What should a man give in exchange for his soul? Quite a lot. During our time in Perth today, we had these two buskers, like I say, strumming away yards from where we were standing. It was reminiscent to our time in Eastbourne some years ago when we had five Romanians playing their trumpets like right behind us, like 10, 15 yards right behind us. They weren't mic'd up. This crowd today, or these two gentlemen today, were mic'd up, strumming away their songs, mocking Christianity. And I thought this, I thought... What would happen if I dialed 999 on my phone, in America it's 911, and I said, give me the police, I am being victimised, I have a man yards behind me playing hateful lyrics or singing hateful lyrics on his guitar, he's saying things about my God, he's saying things about religion in general, I feel greatly distressed, that's the term people use now, distressed, and if you distress someone, or because uh, distress and alarm, the police will intervene, I wonder what would have happened I wonder if Police Scotland, as they are called, would have come. Maybe, maybe not. And what would they have said? If I gave a statement to the police and if I, were, if I was to report these two gentlemen for causing me alarm and distress, what would have happened? I'll tell you what, if I got my microphone out and I started preaching from the scripture about all the sins and sexual sins and somebody phoned at the police, they'd come straight down. You know they would. In fact, as we left, one of you told me that there was a brother who was arrested in Perth. And I remember it now. He was preaching in Perth around five or six years ago. It's on YouTube. And he was preaching just where we were, outside Marks and Spencer. And he had quite a crowd gathering around him. And I remember it now. There were about four or five of them. I think one was an American, although I may be wrong. One was a local. The police were called. He was told to stop preaching. He refused. Uh, he was put in the police car, handcuffed, and driven to the local police station. I think it was Perth or Dundee, but I think it was Perth. So he had a taste of what it's like to fall foul of the law. But it would have been interesting. And maybe one day I'll do that, just to see what the police do. I mean, as far as I know, I'm a British national. I have a right to call the police if I feel threatened or in uh, intimidated. This isn't uh, what we normally do, of course. We're told to turn the other cheek. But I'd just like to know one day how the police would handle it. Or if I'm going through Manchester one day, and I come across the communists with their microphones uh, attacking the uh, British government's and last time I checked, they were voted in. They didn't just seize power or critical of the royal family and other parts of the British constitution. I wonder what the police would do. I wonder how they would handle that. But these guys, they have exchanged uh, their soul for the world. They've given their souls away for the world, singing their anti-capitalist songs, and yet I'm sure they have phones. I'm sure they enjoy uh, some of the pleasures and necessities that capitalism can give you. I don't suppose living in a tent somewhere... I'm sure they enjoy coffee, latte, cappuccinos. It, the whole thing is just so stupid. It's so hypocritical. In fact, before we started recording, we were speaking about a well-known uh, American journalist. I forget his name. And he made a statement concerning his stepfather. I won't go into detail. It's not relevant. But he made the comment that his stepfather's... Or was it his adopted father? No, his biological father. Excuse me. Excuse me. It was his biological father. His biological father had married this man's half-sister, adopted sister. It gets confusing. His biological father had married this man's adopted sister, adopted sister, and he said, uh, it's morally repulsive or it's a moral transgression. And I said this, how dare he say that? And you say, why would I say that? I'm saying that because this man is not a Bible-believing Christian. He's making a moral judgment based on what? If you're not a Bible believer, you have no right to make any moral decision. In fact, if you're not a Bible believer, where do you get your morals from? 
You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I don't need Jesus Christ. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't believe in the Lord. I'll do it my way and turn around and say what his father did was an abomination. In fact, speaking about Frank Sinatra, his last words were, I am losing it. Not, I did it my way, but I am losing it. I am losing it. How about that? I am losing it. That's what he said. Not, I did it my way. Look at 38, please. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Well, in the context, this doesn't have to be uh, literal adultery. This is spiritual adultery. People say, well, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then turn around and phone the police when they see a street preacher. Or they say, I'm a Christian, I go to church every Sunday, and then pass a bill through Parliament which says it's okay for two men to get married, or it's okay for two women to get married. And if you, if you, if you question that, you face an arrest. If you work for the public sector and you come out against this, you will be disciplined. Those people, I think the Lord is speaking about here in verse 38, wicked, adulterous, sinful generation, and they are ashamed of the words of the Lord, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of course, not just the four Gospels, the entire Bible, all 750,000 words. Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Second Advent, of course, not the rapture. So when I think of these people, these sellouts, it does grieve me. It infuriates me. We've already spoken about Mary, Queen of Scots. We spoke about her being executed for being a traitor and as she was being executed she was wearing a red dress because she was a catholic and red of course is the color of martyrdom she wore a wig and that uh, caused a bit of a laugh i suppose and shock to those that were uh, standing around watching it but never forget this had the boot been on the other foot had mary been queen over the entire uk and had elizabeth been planning and plotting to overthrow mary She wouldn't have hesitated to have Elizabeth executed. But, of course, Elizabeth was able to fall back on Cecil, Walsingham. And at the time, Britain had the best spy network in the world. She was a traitor. And when you uh, become guilty of treachery, you must expect uh, capital punishment to follow. Of course, now nobody is put to death for such. But back in the day, you certainly were. Mark chapter 9. Look, please, at verse 32. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. So time after time, the Lord would speak to his apostles, warn them as to what was coming on, uh, what was uh, about to uh, come. They are fearful, didn't quite understand what was going on. And that goes back to Matthew 28, how some did not believe. Some doubted. Over in Mark's Gospel, I think it's Mark 15, it says they were weeping and wailing when he died. In fact, in the TR, it says they were greatly distressed at the news that the Messiah had just died. And here, this uncertainty continues. What is going on? We can't get our heads around the fact that the Messiah is about uh, to die from verse 31. And on top of that, we're going to be, or we're going to be suffering. We're going to be afflicted from an enemy within the camp. Uh, Go to chapter 11, please. Mark chapter 11. Look at uh, 27. And they come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple... They come to him, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? That question is asked uh, from Catholics today. And they say, Who gave you the authority to preach the gospel? Or who gives you the authority to read the Bible 
or where do you get your authority from to do anything? And yet the Pope will say, was it two years ago, who am I to judge you? Who am I to judge homosexuals or lesbians? And now there's a greater move to allow women more authority in the church system and communion is being dispensed more and more. And yet just a few years ago, if you divorced and remarried, you couldn't receive communion. There's a famous Irish journalist who lives in London, Christine O'Dean, and she is a writer, she's a Catholic, been divorced for 15 years, can't break bread, can't receive communion. And every time I've seen on television or the radio, she's almost in tears that a church won't allow her to receive communion because she's divorced. Why not take that church to court? Why not ring 999 and say, I'm being victimised here. I'm being forced out of my own church. I can't receive communion. And by the way, if I don't receive communion, I go to hell. Part of receiving communion is your salvation, if you didn't know that. So her church are indirectly depriving her of salvation. But of course, she won't do that. She is conditioned like Cherie Blair, like Nancy Pelosi. Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, 29. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. I love that. Answering a question or using a question to answer a question. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people. Four men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. In other words, how can we get around this? And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. What's your final authority, the Bible or church tradition? What did we say? Church tradition, the Bible will be thrown out. If we say the Bible, then we can't have church tradition. We don't know. We can't answer that. Are you saved by your faith in Christ alone, or are you saved by faith and works? If we say it's faith alone, then we can't have any works. If we say it's works, then we have to accept it's faith alone, and therefore we don't have a, a role to play in the church. So they are careful with what they say. And of course, behind the scenes, Judas is watching all of this. Never forget that. He is very near the Lord. He's seeing what is taking place. He is very much on the ball, and he's plotting and planning. Again, this is a mystery to me. It's a mystery, number one, why the Lord would choose a traitor. Number two, why this traitor would sell him out. And number three, what was the point of it from the standpoint of Judas? He's got 30 pieces of silver. Not much, really. Like I say, price of a female slave. But for a period of time, in a paradoxical way, he was the wealthiest man in Jerusalem. So these verses, once again, point to what is going on. The intrigue, the build-up to the crucifixion of the Lord's Messiah from the standpoint of God's elect nation. Israel, of course, are God's people. And these are Jewish leaders, Jewish kings, priests, to be more precise. Herod wasn't a, a Jewish king he was linked back to syria Pilate, of course was a gentile but he got priests high priests religious elite from uh, jerusalem of course and here they are trying to work out what to do one more time two-thirds of the entire bible was written before the lord jesus christ was ever born so one more time this is a jewish book the catholic church didn't give us the bible two-thirds of the bible were around before christ even showed up and again, just because Carthage would affirm that the 27 books of the New Testament are the Word of God doesn't mean anything. The early church knew exactly what was the Word of God. Mark chapter 13, please. Mark chapter 13. Coming to the end of the life of the Master. 
Mark chapter 13. Look at verse 1, please. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And most of your commentators and your commentaries and your uh, Bible scholars will say this is Judas speaking. Now, Judas Iscariot is mentioned 23 times in Scripture. 23 times. And out of those 23 times, 23 times that Judas Iscariot is mentioned, no more than five times, no more than five times does he speak explicitly, directly. Now, this is a vague verse when it comes to who is asking the question, but my reference Bibles tell me that it's Judas, possibly. Two, and Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. 70 AD, of course. So we know that Judas is visual, a bit like Lot. He sees, he likes, he wants. He's a coveter, he's a luster, if there's such a word, but he's covetous. He's covetous, he likes what he sees, and he's saying to the Lord, Master, doesn't call him Lord, you note, Master, whereas Peter calls him Lord, Master. See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. A lot of impressive architecture in Edinburgh. A lot of impressive architecture in Stirling. A lot of impressive architecture all over Scotland. Beautiful parts of the UK. Beautiful, beautiful parts of the UK. And I'll tell you something. We spent two hours in Perth today. It took us two hours to get to Perth. It's a dead city. It's dead. Hostility, indifference. It has been probably four years since we last experienced this level of hostility, I almost got into an altercation with two buskers. Very near. And the last time that happened was in Hastings. But if I wasn't saved, I would say, what a beautiful part of the UK this is. I mean, where we are staying now, lovely house. Lovely uh, rear to the house and front of the house. And not far from here is Holyrood Parliament, an ugly building. But the greenery is beautiful. Everything around us is lovely. But it's a dead city. It's a dry city. Mark chapter 14. Mark uh, chapter 14. Look at verse uh, 3, if you will, please. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? Not just one person, you'll note. There's more than one. One person starts to murmur, others join in. The devil starts to murmur, others join in. Go back to the Old Testament, they start murmuring, like Aaron starts murmuring over the wife of Moses. Miriam joins in. This is the reality. It's contagious. And here, you've got more than one person being grieved that this woman is doing what she's about to do because the master is about to die for the sins of the world. This is incredible. Over Matthew chapter 20, it says they were arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. The Lord has just told them he's going to die the most vicious death that you could possibly imagine. And they're saying, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How many crowns am I going to get? How many angels am I under my authority? Such were saved people. They weren't unsaved. They were saved people, but they're like children. They're like carnal some of the time. Five, for it might have been sold for more than 300 pence. And have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. Judas, of course, is a ringleader. And, as I would say, shooting his mouth off. And on top of that, people are joining in with him. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Ye, plural. How dare you people challenge her? Leave her alone. Now, these are saved people, excluding Judas, of course. Maybe Thomas was in there. 
He's referred to as Doubting Thomas. We don't know. But let me say this from John 11, when Lazarus has died, Thomas says, let's go up. And if we die, we die. Slightly paraphrasing. But sometimes Thomas gets a bad rap. But here you got at least one person being Judas. And also others are joining in with this criticism, this um, problem that they see concerning the woman pouring uh, very expensive ointments on the Lord's head. And the Lord rebukes them from verse 6. Look at verse 7. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me, ye have not always. Absolutely. She hath done what she could. She came aforehand to anoint to not my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. That's how it should have been for Judas. But unfortunately, when we say Judas Iscariot, and again, 13 letters to that infamous name, we can't think of anything good when it comes to Judas. I can't think of anything good. If you say, how about Adolf Hitler? Nothing good comes to my mind. Or Fidel Castro? Nothing good. Or Pinochet? Or any of those tyrants? I can't think of anything good that comes to my mind. And I challenge these two buskers in Perth. And I mentioned Castro, all the usual monsters, and Stalin, and Mao Zedong, and all the atheist Darwinists, because they should be held up. They should be condemned. We get quite a kicking in a spiritual sense as Christians for standing up for what is right. We should be able to turn around and give some of their false gods a good kicking every so often. But this woman is being elevated. She's being commended. She's being congratulated, if you will. She's being given the thumbs up, if you will, from the Lord. Contrast that to Judas. It was better for him if he had never been born. Go back to Psalm 69, 109. Make his wife be a vagabond. Make his children be vagabonds, perpetually homeless, walking around like the wandering Jew found in uh, Jude. That wandering Jew who's going around completely uh, unable to fit in, nowhere to lay his head. And here this woman has been uh, held up, has been greatly commended. And this shows the sadness, the absolute distress of seeing someone like Judas who could have had so much and yet ended up having so little. Eleven. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Look at that again. And when they heard it, they were glad, concerning the false priests, of course, and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Going back to verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. So something happened during that incident with the woman. That was the tipping point. Something happened, which I don't really understand. And he felt, that's it, I can't go along. It could be that perhaps he was like Simon the Zealot. Maybe he wanted the Lord to bring in a physical kingdom straight away. I mean, we know that the Jews hated the Romans, much like the Palestinians hate the Jews today. And maybe he thought the Lord is going to deal with the Romans once and for all and bring in the kingdom. That's what Acts chapter 1 says. And the Lord says, no, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. When my father is ready, he will initiate the thousand-year reign. So perhaps Judas didn't like what was going on, or as John the Baptist would stumble and say to one of his disciples, is he the one that we should be looking for, or is someone else on route? Or maybe, like Jonah, uh, when Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, he was furious about it, absolutely incredulated about it. I don't want to go to those people, those stinking Gentiles, going back to the Buddhists not eating meat because they believed that such could be uh, one's... Uh, 
reincarnated uh, relative, and the Hindus won't eat meat because they see meat as being sacred. And you've got these strange beliefs that are becoming more and more mainstream. And here it could be, and I'm speculating, but it could be that one of the reasons why Judas felt the way that he did was because of his hatred towards the Gentiles. 17. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. One of you from within, not without. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Who could it be? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, for knowledge, Old Testament, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. So once more, he will hold Judas accountable. He will hold everyone accountable for their rejection of who he is and what he is. And those people today mocking us in Sterling, excuse me, not Sterling, a Perth, are going to be held uh, accountable for their rejection of him. And here the Lord is going to deal with Judas in his own time and in his own way. Jump over to verse 42, please. Verse 42. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. He's here. He's tore up, as they say. He's got a group with him. And immediately, verse 43, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They were determined to take him. They've waited. They were infuriated that the man from Galilee, who hadn't been through their system, who wasn't one of their own, was making a real difference. People were getting saved. People's lives were being transformed. And all of this was taking place outside of organized religion, the highways and the byways. We worked out years ago, Patrick and I, that when we first moved to the northwest of England, within the first two years, we traveled to 56 towns and cities, not blowing our trumpet, just stating a fact. And up until maybe a year or so ago, we have been able to give out over one million tracks. By the grace of God, this will be our 10th outreach. And who else is doing this? Yes, we met some good people today in Perth, well-intended church people. But, I mean, people standing on a street with a banner and even street preaching. Almost no one is doing this because, of course, it doesn't really fit in uh, with what most churches want to do. And it's also an offence, let's be quite honest. It's also an offence to a lot of people. 44. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. That word again, Master. Look at the great temple. Look at the, 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 the stones. Um, money mad, as we would say. And they laid their hands on him and took him. Unclean people. Unclean Gentiles, apostate Jews, the greatest traitor that has ever lived. And now the Lord has been sold to them. And they will hand him over to Pilate to do their dirty work for them. But of course, based on scripture. One last uh, scripture and we will close. Jump over to chapter 15, please. Chapter 15, uh, chapter 15. Look, if you will, please, at 39. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that... He so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. That's what Judas should have said. Not some unsaved Roman centurion who worshipped many gods. In fact, I said to these guys today, you worship yourself. You are your own God. 
Don't give me that jazz that I'm religious or that you're not religious. You are religious. You worship yourself. You think you are this big cheese. You have this high view of yourself. I've met many people like him over the years. He may not have a Bible like I do, but he has an altar in his own heart. He will spend time thinking about how wonderful he is. He'll quote his own philosophers. He will have people that he looks up to. And I mentioned some of his idols already. Castro, Lenin, Stalin, Mao. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I know exactly what that man is about. And here he is seeing his heart out, forcing his beliefs on us, and then turning around and condemning us for pushing, quote-unquote, our beliefs on other people. I didn't even preach today. I didn't even preach today. I just got my banner up. We got the banner up. We did what we did. And yet he is criticizing us for doing what he is doing. Hypocrites, of course. 39, one more time. And when the centurion, responsible for 100 men, which stood over against him, he oversaw the crucifixion, saw that he so cried out, going back to Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and gave up the ghost, died when he was ready. You couldn't force him to. You couldn't speed up the death. He went when he was ready to go. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That's how it should have been for Judas. That's how it could have been for so many of these people that we've spoken about concerning suicide, treachery, betrayal, people that say they are believers, people that hold to being of the book, people that say they really believe in the Lord, and yet they deny him in so many ways. Not just in the House of Lords, not just in London or Washington or Madrid or Barcelona or any other so-called Christian or Christendom part of the world, but street preachers, church leaders, and many, 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 far too many people, I would suggest, are guilty of betraying the Lord. And for some of those people, far less, far less than 30 pieces of silver. So this morning, I was able to catch Jesse Lee Peterson on British television for the first time ever, and he was being interviewed by Piers Morgan, a Roman Catholic, and the uh, conversation concerned racism. And Jesse doesn't believe in racism. He believes it is a mirage, and he also believes it is a cover for immorality, anger, and evil, wickedness. And within about five or six minutes of Jesse, uh, live from Los Angeles, he was putting his case forward, and he was criticizing Black Lives Matter as a far left-wing radical group uh, led by homosexuals and lesbians. And the shock and horror from Piers Morgan and uh, his uh, female colleague, Suzanne Reed, I think it is, was absolutely bewildering to see, just absolutely baffling. And here's Piers Morgan, this very uh, flamboyant character, plenty to say, a real man's man, and yet he was horrified that Jesse would say what he would say. And what they did was simply to cut the microphone. And they had another guest in Connecticut, a black British journalist who used to be on daytime television, a lady called Trisha Goddard, and she was able to put her case forward. Wasn't questioned, wasn't censored. And this goes back to, once again, uh, what you can and cannot say. There are many self-hating white people in the UK, and yet white working-class boys in the UK are the least likely to attend university. Far and few are represented. Most people will not stand up or fight for such people. And yet going back to the, the African uh, terrorists who kidnapped uh, hundreds of girls and 10,000 boys, got quite a reaction from 
politicians in Britain and America and around the world because the Boko Haram uh, characters are the bogeymen, if you will. And, of course, they are terrorists, don't get me wrong. But there are three groups of subjects which are off-limits today. Number one, Islam. Number two, homosexuality. Number three, racism. And if you speak against any one of those three uh, subjects, look out. The purpose of this uh, sermon, this message, is to look at Judas Iscariot, treachery and suicide. On the subject of treachery, turn of the last century, there's a lady called Mrs. Pankhurst, and Mrs. Pankhurst was one of the leaders of the suffragette movement, a very powerful woman, a very influential woman, and their mandate was to secure votes for wealthy white men and women only. They never wanted votes for everyone, only wealthy white men and women. And after World War I, over five million men were not permitted to vote. And you say, why would that be? Well, I would suggest this. Number one, out of those five million men that fought in the war, some of those men were criminals, some of those men were homosexuals, some of those men were perhaps religious, non-conformists, perhaps gypsies, and who knows what else. But if you were in the suffragette movement, your mandate was quite simply, first and foremost, to secure votes for white, wealthy, middle-class women, and also white, wealthy, middle-class men. Working-class people, the vote wasn't for such people. And the reason I mention uh, Mrs. Pankhurst is because she had at least two daughters. One, we believe, may have been saved but the other we're not so sure about. And her other daughter, whose name escapes me, had a child out of wedlock, deliberately, despite her mother. And again, this shows the uh, complexity of people as to why she would do that. And towards the end of Mrs. Pankhurst's life, she was almost broke. She had to go to America to give many talks. And even the uh, trips back and forth from Britain to America weren't cheap, obviously. But even when she arrived in America, it wasn't always guaranteed that she would make money. Just for the record, I don't uh, support, and I'm not an endorser of the suffragette movement. They were terrorists. They put bombs in letter boxes. They would attack police. They would attack uh, the civil authorities. If you go on YouTube, if you type in Epson Horse Race, you will see footage of a female member of the suffragette movement killing herself. And some people have said over the years that she was wanting to get a message across, and it went wrong. I don't know. I wonder if it was a suicide attempt, and it actually came to pass. I don't know. But I don't believe in taking the law into your own hands, and the suffragette movements, I would say, were guilty of terrorism, much like the uh, Boko Haram guys in Nigeria and the IRA in Ireland and the mainland. But I'll say this, that Mrs. Pankhurst's daughter betrayed her mother. Her mother was a public figure, and... She raised at least two daughters. There may be more children. I don't know. But one of her daughters decided to betray her mother. But if you live in the UK, if you have views on Islam, homosexuality or racism, look out. Because they will come after you. They will shut you down. And again, this goes back to what we've been discussing, how politicians have sold you out, as have church people. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. This will be a threefold message looking at Judas Iscariot, treachery and suicide. Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, look at verse 6 please. And it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. 
So once again, Judas is present. He doesn't miss out on much. He sees everything. He hears everything, apart from a handful of intimate briefings that the Lord would give to his closest aides, his inner cabinets. And here the Lord has gone into a synagogue on a Sabbath, and he has spotted a man whose right hand was withered. Look at verse 7. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. Always watching and waiting, wanting to pounce. And many times people see the worst in others. And if you can, give people the benefits of the doubt. Don't be so quick to judge. Don't be so quick to condemn someone or write someone off. Eight. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. And I wonder what Judas made of this miracle taking place. He would witness every miracle. He would see up to 20,000 people being fed. He would see the Lord walking on water in the dead of night. And yet here a miracle is taking place right in the presence of Judas and co. And I will suggest that he was indifferent. Completely different, indifferent, completely disinterested, passive would be the word. Verse 9. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Again, answering a question with a question. And looking around about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. It's like if you do street work, you will find people coming over to you from church groups or religious communities. And many times they will say, you're doing it all wrong. In fact, just yesterday, a lady walked over to our group as we were in Perth, a poor, depressed town. And she said, if you read the Bible, you will know that you're doing something wrong or you're doing something wrong. I forget exactly what she said, but she was pretty much correcting us, criticizing us. And yet... The question was put to the woman, well, what are we doing wrong? And she carried on walking, didn't have anything to say to us. Twelve, and it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God, which would suggest, based on verse 13, 14 and beyond, that he chose his apostles in time, not before the foundation of the world, uh, which is what the Calvinists would have you believe. Thirteen, and when it was day, He called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zealots, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. So one more time, Matthew and James, verse 15, are biological brothers. Peter and Andrew, verse 14, are biological brothers. James and John, also found in verse uh, 14, are biological brothers. At least three groups of biological brothers. But something which is very interesting, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 6, concluding in verse 16. 666. And Luke 666, Judas Iscariot once again appears. Judas Iscariot, 13 letters in his name, which also was the traitor. So again, when we speak about treachery, we can speak about, for example, uh, the Catholic Church and the Church of England betraying a principle or a person. And I will continue to suggest this, that both churches, quote-unquote, have betrayed the person, the principle of Christ, for success and fame 
And not only that, but wealth as well. Luke 6.6 displays the presence of Judas Iscariot, the traitor. And again, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels, always start with Peter and end with Judas Iscariot. Look at verse 22. Blessed are ye, when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall approach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. So to some extent, Jesse got that this morning. To some extent, Jesse was frozen out. Just for the record, Jesse is a Christian, a conservative Christian, and I've watched many of his messages over recent months. Socially conservative, morally conservative, and yet I have some criticisms of Jesse. Number one, he doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is Almighty God. That's the main problem that I have with Jesse Lee Peterson. Number two, some of his guests on his radio and television shows are questionable. And number three, he blasphemes. He takes the Lord's name in vain. And I've left comments on some of his videos, and maybe one day he will deal with that. He was interviewed some months ago by Jeff Durbin, I think that's the guy's name, in America, who runs an anti-abortion ministry, a very solid anti-abortion ministry. And during the uh, conversation with Jeff Durbin, he was challenged. He was challenged on his rejection that Jesus Christ is Almighty God. And he was also challenged on what salvation is. And that was interesting to watch. But like all of these people, you have to be very careful uh, whether or not to endorse them, how to appraise them. But when it comes to his views on social affairs, very conservative, very much on the same page as we are, and to watch him being shut down by uh, Good Morning Britain, a British uh, television channel, was shameful. And I would suggest this. I wonder if it's worth boycotting ITV. I wonder if it's worth taking a stand and saying that we don't want to uh, be silenced in such a way. I've watched far too many documentaries and interviews over the years, and I've had to listen to some awful views on television. I get sick of people attacking my country. I get sick of people attacking my country's heritage. I get sick of people saying, tear down statues of Trafalgar and uh, Cromwell and other people in and around the London area. I know some of the the Brethren in America, some of the American uh, Christians are also upset about some of their uh, heroes going back to the Civil War having such statues torn down. Again, this goes back to self-hating white people. I don't know why there are so many self-hating white people that just can't help but attack their culture, their heritage. Look at 23. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But warrant you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Now, I'm going to suggest this one more time, that this could be indirectly in reference to Judas Iscariot. He will sell the Lord out for 30 pieces of silver. The brethren of Joseph would sell him out for 20 pieces of silver. And church groups, I don't care what the denomination is, have sold out the Lord Jesus Christ for all sorts of purposes and gains over the years. Look at verse 25. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Warrant you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Going back to Nelson Mandela. Going back to Desmond Tutu. In fact, I caught another interview not very long ago. It was concerning a guy in America called Dr. Michael Brown. And he is a Jewish uh, Christian. And this guy, Michael Brown, was interviewing uh, Ben Shapiro. 
a well-known uh, Jewish man, anti-abortion like Durban. And I watched Brown interviewing Shapiro, never once calling him to repent, never once presented the Messiah to Shapiro. And on top of that, uh, Michael Brown lies about the Talmud. He was asked quite simply in one of his videos, does the Talmud attack Jesus Christ? He said, no, he's a liar. The Talmud calls Jesus Christ a bastard. I don't know why he comes out and says that, although I think I do know why he comes out and says that, because he wants to stay in with the Jews. I don't. I love the Jews, but I won't stand up. I won't stand aside when their book, the Talmud, attacks my saviour. But you see, this is what happens when you're on the tour circuits. You don't bite the hand that feeds you, do you? And that's also something that Jesse is guilty of. He wants people to go onto his show, and he allows people to go onto his show, and he allows people to have their say, which I'm all in favour of. But I think, at times, he allows those people to have too much of a say. And doesn't always correct them. Doesn't always challenge them. He had a young boy on his show from Singapore. uh, Turn of the year. I say young boy. He's probably about 20 now. A young man. And he fell foul of the government in Singapore. He was coming out with a lot of controversial statements like let's uh, legalise paedophilia and other stuff such as that. And I got the impression that Jesse was somewhat bemused by some of his views and statements. Didn't really challenge them unlike other people that he will come up against. This is the problem, I think, if you become too successful, you end up compromising. And I believe that Michael Brown has compromised with the Jewish community. And once he has done that, he has, can I say, sold the Lord out. He's become a traitor. I'm not saying he's not saved. I'm not saying he's going to go to hell. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to his testimony, when it comes to his radio program, he could say so much more. I'll tell you something else. He had Stephen Anderson's assistant pastor on i forget the guy's name he's mexican i think american mexican and this uh young pastor one of anderson's uh number twos or lieutenants call him what you will was really getting a hard time on michael brown's show and i don't endorse stephen anderson i think the guy's a fruitcake i think he's an exhibitionist but his number two who has his own church somewhere in america was really getting a grilling for his beliefs and yet when shapira came on the show who attacks the resurrection, attacks the Lord Jesus Christ, attacks the New Testament, pretty much says Jesus Christ was a Shekhavara. He wasn't challenged. He wasn't put in his place. But this other guy, who could be saved, I don't know, was really given a hard time. Look at verse 36, please. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Well, much could be said about that. Judas should have been merciful to the Lord, but he was eyeing up the goods. He was the bagman. He was the treasurer. And looking at... Uh, Mark 13, which we did last time, he was very much impressed with the temple. He had his eyes on the here and now, not on eternity. Look at verse 46. Why call ye me Lord, Lord? And do not the things which I say, whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood arose, a stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it. For it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently. And immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. House, soil, earth. Again, I will suggest indirectly in reference to Judas. He thought he had gained the world and yet had tragically lost his soul. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 46, and do not the things which I say? For the record, Judas never called Jesus Lord. He called him Master. So we will say this, that Judas was never saved to begin with, and yet he saw 
far more than we will ever see. Lucifer has seen far more than we will ever see, and yet Lucifer fell, Judas fell, and, as we've been saying, took a good number of people with him. Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, look at verse 1, please. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. Demon-possessed women, devil-possessed women. And of course they didn't realize that Judas would be possessed more than once, according to Luke 22. And here the Lord is on the move, traveling around Israel. He's got men and women with him, also from, I think it's Luke 10. He has a 70 that are present. And you've got at least three women mentioned here from verses 2 and 3. And they are ministering unto him of their substance. They are helping him out financially, filled with unclean spirits, which can cause you to do all sorts of crazy things, terrible things. Back in 1967, Tom Jones, a Welsh singer, was going nowhere. His career was washed up, couldn't get into the industry, had recorded some songs, but they were failing to be played on the radio. And one day Tom Jones got on the London Underground and he was waiting for the tube to come in, and he had one intention, to kill himself. And the tube came in, and saw the train coming nearer and nearer and nearer, and he stood back, and he was seconds from throwing himself in front of the train, and at the last minute he pulled back. Twelve months later, he had his first number one hit. Isn't that interesting? And never looked back since 1968. But Tom Jones, an unsaved Welshman, almost killed himself. He wasn't getting the breaks that he wanted, And had he killed himself that day in 1968, he would have gone straight to hell. But to be fair to him, the best was yet to come. And the following year, like I say, he had his first number one hit. Look at verse 10, please. And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see and hearing, they might not understand. So for now, the church, if you will, is a mystery. The church is... Mystery Israel, spiritual Israel, the Messiah was told, was uh, prophesied back in the Old Testament that he would come to Israel, preach to Israel, that they would see but not perceive, would hear but not comprehend. And therefore, the Lord will speak in parables. And it could just be that one of the reasons why he would speak in parables was because of Judas Iscariot as well. Why brief him? One day he will sell the Lord out, his whole demeanor, his whole existence, his whole Presence was to undermine the ministry of the Lord, and therefore the Lord wants to speak in parables. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Could be applicable for Judas. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away permanently. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth, and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. Like your testimony gets burnt up, you're still saved, of course, but you become fruitless, you become barren, you're not worth tuppence. 15. But that on the good ground are they which, in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. So Judas had free will, he could have done 
whatever was needed. And yet Judas would fail the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter would fail the Lord Jesus Christ. Only John is almost perfect. Although later on he would call fire down from heaven when the Samaritans refused to believe on the Lord. And the Lord would have to rebuke John for his outburst of anger. 22. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples. And he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they being afraid, one is saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. Now had I seen that, I would have been flat on my face. Whatever you say, Lord, I'll serve you no, no matter what. But Judas, something's not right with that man. He sees such a tremendous miracle, and yet it doesn't register with him. I've spent thousands of hours over the last 16 years on the street speaking to people, emails, Skype, trying to reach out to people. And for some reason, most of the people that I have spoken to over the years either can't get it or won't get it. But when I first heard the gospel, I got it, and I I haven't departed from it. But for so many people that I speak to, and I'm sure others can testify to this, they hear it, but going back to what we just looked at, they can't uh, comprehend it, they can't perceive it, they can't receive it, because there is a judgment on them. Going back to the Old Testament, and also partly pictured today with the devil, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, putting people into a perpetual blindness. Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, look at verse 24, please. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall receive it. Again, it's a paradox. It will cost you something to follow the Lord. Judas could have followed the Lord. He could have gone down as a great soul winner. His name could have been preserved in Hebrews chapter 11. He could have been up there with the greats, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, but he, come, he becomes one of the most infamous people, an absolute failure. And whenever you hear the name Judas, you know you are hearing about somebody who has sold out a great man, the greatest man, the Lord Jesus Christ. 25. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his fathers, and of the holy angels. A good number of Christians are ashamed of the King James Bible. They won't take a stand for it. They don't like to be ridiculed. They hate uh, being shown up for not knowing Greek or Hebrew. And yet, if you had a Greek uh, lexicon, or if you had a Greek New Testament, there are many ways to translate Greek into English, as, uh, as it would be from Hebrew into English. In fact, somebody once said, I think it was a sermon I heard some years ago, It made the case that they had heard five sermons preached on Romans chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. And those five sermons from five different preachers all translated uh, Romans 8, 1 to 3, five different ways. So even if you could speak Greek, would you trust your own judgment? I I wouldn't trust my judgment. I'd rather trust the King James, and if I get it wrong, I go to hell. I don't want to trust some church or some scholar. I've seen too many of these guys over the years preach a message for a long period of time and turn around and say, I don't believe it. I never believed it. Or, well, I always had my doubts about the TR. Or, well, I was never really sure about the King James Bible or this or that. I'd rather 
read the word of God in my own tongue, my own language. And if I get it wrong, okay, I get it wrong. I can't blame anybody else, can I? I can't blame anybody else. I can't say, well, my priest told me this, or my pastor told me this, or my deacon or elder told me this. If I'm wrong, put my hands up, I am wrong, and I deserve to go to hell. 49. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followed, because he followeth not with us. A little bit of sectarianism there. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went, and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So there you are, another outburst of anger from James and John. And of course, we have to remind ourselves that, strictly speaking, the apostles were not regenerated until Acts chapter 1. They were saved, of course, through imputation. They believed and were saved like those in the Old Testament would be saved, but they weren't regenerated until Acts chapter 1. So when we read about these uh, accounts and this particular uh, incident concerning these Samaritans, we know that this is very reminiscent of the Old Testament. 10.1 After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. So now the seventy have been dispatched, and along with that you've got Judas going up with them, enjoying what he sees, and is able to perform himself, and yet his heart is dead, he has treachery in his heart. 16. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. So again, if you hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you are Jew or Gentile, and if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you are despising God, as you are also despising God the Son. 17. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Saved in spite of yourselves, not because of yourselves. And here, once again, the Lord is commending what has taken place. But he's saying, never mind bragging or rejoicing in what you've just seen and done but appreciate the fact that you are saved and you are saved in spite of yourselves not because of yourself and yet judas is present like i say he's seeing everything he's hearing everything and yet really what he wants to do is be like the lord jesus christ uh, luke chapter 12 luke chapter 12 look at verse 8 please also i say unto you whosoever shall confess me before men him shall the son of man also confess before the angels of god but he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. Back again to the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. And clearly all sins can be forgiven uh, before you are saved. And if you are saved and you sin, confess it. And the Lord will restore you back into fellowship. 
But you've got Judas in the background. You've got the devil in the background, biding his time, wanting to sell the Lord out, wanting to destroy the Lord. And of course, you know what happens. He becomes guilt-ridden, and he can't handle it anymore. Back in the late 1970s, Sylvester Stallone was trying to make a living. He was struggling, and uh, around the early 1970s, he was married, but life was very difficult for him, and he was homeless for a period of time. He would sleep in phone boxes for a period of time. He was working in zoos, clearing out cages for a period of time, and one day he thought, I can't go on like this anymore. My life is just non-existent. There is no purpose to my life. I'm going to kill myself. And lo and behold, there was a boxing match not far from where he was living on the streets in Los Angeles. And he went to this boxing match, watched the game, and he had an idea. I'm going to write a story about a boxer. And he went back to his, wherever he was living, on a park bench somewhere in Los Angeles. And he started to sketch it all out. Rocky Balboa, trained by Mickey, and Paulie is his brother-in-law. I've watched all the Rocky films, by the way, in case you know who these people are. And he wrote the script... And he tried to sell it to the studios. And they said, we don't like this script. It's not going to work for us. So he's back on the streets, clearing out cages, sleeping in phone boxes, getting very depressed. Back to Rocky. Rocky Chapter 1, he beats Apollo Creed. Rocky Chapter 3, he beats Mr. T. Rocky Chapter 4, he beats Ivan Ivan Drago. Drago, Drago. Rocky Chapter 5, he beats uh, such and such. Forget the guy's name. And he writes the whole, the, whole, the whole thing out. He made six Rocky movies. This is absolutely a true story. Back into the studio, or right, right into the studio, trying to get his script uh, taken seriously by the studio. And one studio says, we like it, we like it. But we have one condition, Mr. Salone. You don't play Rocky Balboa. We want a famous American actor. Nobody knows who you are. You're just a bum. We'll give you $100,000 if you don't play Rocky Balboa. I've got to play Rocky Balboa. That's me. That character is me. Another six months go by. His first child is born. He's living a pretty difficult life. He's still cleaning cages. I mean, really struggling in Los Angeles, really struggling. And after 18 months of going back and forth with all the studios in Los Angeles, Hollywood, of course, to be precise, one studio likes the script and wants to make a movie based on his script of Rocky. Eventually, they offer him $5 million, but you don't play Rocky Balboa. We can't have you play Rocky Balboa because you're not an actor, you're just a bum. You won't make this film successful. No, I don't want $5 million. This is a guy who's almost homeless. You've got a kid and a wife. Six months go by, okay, we give in. You play Rocky Balboa. Within the first five years of Rocky 1 and 2 being made, it made over $150 million. And now Sylvester Stallone, 75, 76, is an A-star actor. Not a particularly good actor, but nevertheless, you know, he wrote the script from scratch, was about to kill himself, life was going nowhere. He persevered on. Now, here's an unsaved man persevering on. A bit like Tom Jones, an unsaved man persevering on. Stallone had a dream. Jones had a dream. Jones became a top star singer. Stallone became a top star actor. Both multimillionaires, both unsaved. They pushed on. So if they are, and if they did push on and became very successful and... Stallone was able to make many, many movies. I wonder why Christians are unable to persevere on for the Lord, deny themselves, and make a real difference when it comes to the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, look at verse 11, please. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, and was bowed together, and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately 
She was made straight and glorified God. I wonder if she ever considered suicide. Jones did. Stallone did. And yet they both persevered on and became megastars. And here this woman, referred to elsewhere as a daughter of Abraham, has been bound by the devil for 18 years. And one day she finds the Lord Jesus Christ and is immediately, verse 13, healed and glorifies God. Look at verse 14, please. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. They can't control him, you see. They can't control him. They can't control the miracles. And obviously they are jealous and infuriated. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to the watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound low these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? I wonder how long the devil had bound up Judas. I wonder if Judas was bad from the beginning. We call such bad blood. We know that from the Old Testament again, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, the Messiah had a lot to say about Judas and his treachery. Look at 17. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Be like the great white throne judgment, how every mouth will be stopped. And yes, you'll have your say if you want to call it that. You can tell the Lord how great you were. You can brag about how wonderful you have been. And just watch the Lord turn around and say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And off you go into everlasting hell. Luke chapter 15, please. Luke chapter 15. Look at verse 1, please. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. It's the working class. It's the people at the bottom of the barrel who are gravitating to him. It's not the intellectuals. It's not the middle class. It's just ordinary people. In fact, just yesterday, a guy came up to me in Perth, took a tract and said to me, I can't read or write. And I said to him, well, can you go online? Do you have access to the internet? I do, he said. I said, go online. You can watch sermons and messages online. Here's my gospel tract. Uh, Here's my website, trying to explain the purpose of being born again. And I gave him the gospel as best as I could. But he had some interest, more than most intellectuals that I meet. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. Going back to the fact that we have no king but Caesar, We weren't born of fornication. Who do you think you are? This man can't even speak letters. It's snobbery again. It goes back to those that are intellectual, those that are from academia, castigating those that are not. 16, chapter 16, chapter 16. Let's keep moving on, please. Chapter 16, look at verse 14. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And if you make it into Parliament or into the House of Lords, or if you become a bishop in the Church of England, or a cardinal in the Catholic Church, you wear a very nice attire. People will bow down to you. They will kiss your hand. They will consider you to be something special. And we have a... uh, belief of you and Patrick holds to this that some years ago Pope Francis went to the White House to visit uh, Barack and Michelle Obama and there's been much speculation online over the years concerning Michelle's sexuality is she transgender was she born a man or is she just a very masculine woman 
And apparently, and I remember this quite well, when the Pope went to Washington, he arrived at, I think, Andrews Air Force Base, wherever they fly in, and the cabinet were there, the president and his wife were there, which is kind of unusual. Goes to the White House, this is the Pope, comes out of the White House, followed by the Obamas, and Michelle is beaming. And she turns around to one of her aides and said, he did it, he did it. And we believe that he gave her his blessing, because he said some time ago, who am I to judge? I can't judge you. And that shows the complete apostasy, the complete collapse of the Catholic Church. Outwardly, they say one thing, but inwardly, they are completely different. Outwardly, they castigate non-Catholics. They have to. But inwardly, it's a whole different ballgame. And this goes back to statements given by Benedict and Francis. There's no hell. Non-Catholics can go to heaven. And yet Catholics that go to Mass on a regular basis are expected to give. They are expected to remain in a state of grace. Otherwise, you go to purgatory. And yet that same Church, quote-unquote, turn around and make the case that you don't have to be a Catholic to go to heaven. There's no such place as hell. It's all good. And I'd like to ask the question, why are intellectual Catholics not questioning what they are hearing? But verse 15 is a timeless uh, statement of condemnation, making it very clear that people are highly esteemed among men, and when that happens, such are an abomination of sight of God. Look at verse 16, please. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Every man, every woman, everyone, anyone that is of the age of accountability must push in. Press in to be saved. You have to help yourself, as they say. The Lord won't do everything for you. He gives you salvation, but expects you to believe on him. He offered the same to Judas Iscariot and the Lord uh, realized, and of course the, the, uh, the Lord knew through foreknowledge that Judas would turn him down, sell him out, and as a result, one more time, become the most infamous person that ever lived. 1831, 1831, then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Well, you better believe it. The scripture cannot be broken. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. No doubt to keep Judas out of this briefing. He wasn't privy to this. And also the apostles around this time couldn't handle this uh, breaking, uh, breaking news, earth-shattering news that their beloved master was about to be thrown to the dogs, thrown to the wolves, as we say. 35, and it came to pass that, as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging, and hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. This man had more faith than Judas and most people today. What's going on? I can hear a commotion. I can hear it, but I can't see it. 37, and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. I love this. And they which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Wouldn't that have been great if Judas had said that? Or Caiaphas, or Annas, or the Pope of Rome, or previous and past archbishops of Canterbury. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight, thy faith hath saved thee. The just shall live by faith. 
This is wonderful news, and yet tragically, tragically it gets passed over, turned down, time after time. Go to Luke chapter 20, please. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And it came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? And who is he that gave thee this authority? Again, this is a timeless question that gets put to Bible believers from Catholics and other religious people. And what they are saying in essence is, we don't like what you are saying. We want to undermine you. We want to shut you up because you have authority. People are getting saved. But what you say and do, whereas what we are offering people is religion. Verse 3, And he answered and said unto them, I would also ask you one question and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye him not? Going back to the Bible issue, going back to how you are saved. If we said the scripture is the final authority, if we say that we are saved by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the priests aren't needed, the pastors aren't needed, deacons and elders aren't needed. But, verse 6, And if we say of men, all the people will stone us. If we turn around and correct the Bible, or rubbish the bible we will lose face so we have to pretend to be bible believers while at the same time undermining the bible we have to pretend to teach faith alone while secretly teaching faith and works for they be persuaded that john was a prophet the people had more sense than the so-called academics and they answered that they could not tell whence it was they played dumb this is a typical problem that we meet that we find when we meet people in the streets they play dumb So we don't really know who made the world. We don't really know who God is. We don't really know who wrote the Bible. We don't really know if we can trust Jesus even lived. And if the same people turn around and quote people that lived 200 years ago and not question those people, or 300 years ago, and not question those people, but Jesus Christ, who lived 2,000 years ago, and not only is he found in the New Testament, he's found in 41 books written by non-believers. 41 books. And one of the books that he's found in is the Jewish Talmud it's called him a bastard and even the quran mentions him five six hundred years after his death burial and resurrection and yet to listen to some people there's no evidence that he lived and they cut their throats when they say that somebody once said that the lord gives man enough rope to save him and he also gives man enough rope to hang himself not a truth in that luke 22 please Luke 22, look at verse 1, please. Now the feast of unliving bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. What a terrifying scripture. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and commented to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. He's a coward as well. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And of course Jesus Christ is the Passover. And here Judas is now at the point of no return. Going back to Peter Rutman Jr. Going back to other people that we've spoken about. Dolores from the Cranberries. He can't go back. He's gone too far forward. Verse 19 And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, 
The hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Now fear fills their hearts. Whom is the Lord speaking about? Which one of us is the traitor? Is it even possible that somebody from our own midst would be guilty of such a thing? Look at 23. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. Incredible. He just had a dinner with them, a meal with them. He just told them what is about to take place. And in the midst of that, they start discussing which will be the greatest. Going back again to the old nature in the believer. Jump down to verse 31, please. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So the Lord prayed, interceded for Peter, but wouldn't pray or intercede for Judas. We're told from John 17 not to pray for the world. We're told that the Lord has his own elect, his own group that are going to be saved, preserved. But the world in general is under the judgment of God. He loves the world, he died for the world, but the world as a group, or the cosmos as a substance, or people in general outside of the body of Christ, those that won't believe on him, are out in the cold, if you will. 33, and he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And I'm sure he believed that at that moment. But later on, when push came to shove, he would sell the Lord out. 34, and he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, nothing. There's a great picture there of preservation, keeping you safe in the beloved. Then said he unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garments and buy one. In reference to going into the real world, not in reference to being armed to fight and kill people. And I've heard people that hold to guns using this piece of scripture to give them a license to be armed. That's not what is in reference here. Verse 44, please. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. So the apostles can't handle this. This is too much for them. They know that the end is about to come upon them, or the Lord Jesus Christ, to be more uh, specific. And when you are depressed, when you are down, you go to sleep. You close your eyes. You just can't take it anymore. A bit like some of the people that we've spoken about over the last little while. 47. While he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. Kiss of death. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? In other words, is this the best you can do? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Thinking in physical, carnal terms, not spiritual terms. And one of them smote the servants of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far? And he touched his ear and healed him. So another miracle has taken place in the presence of the apostles. And no doubt Judas saw this, and yet it was still too little. It didn't register with him. Going back to how our hearts are desperately wicked. We are dead. We are spiritually dead in our sins before we are saved. 
52. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, I was with you for a period of time. Why didn't you come up to me and challenge me to my face? Why wait till the dead of night to do this? I remember some years ago we worked with a particular person and it was an interesting two-day outreach. And we drove back home, and I got an email from this guy. James, you got this wrong, you got this wrong, you got this wrong, you got this wrong. And I said to Patrick, why didn't he tell me to my face over dinner? Why wait till I'm 300 miles away, back in Manchester, to tell me that I got it wrong? And here the same sort of thing is taking place. This is the worst type of treachery. This has come from within, not without. And you would expect somebody who didn't know the Lord to put the knife in. But this is coming from within, not without. Luke 24, Luke 24, look at verse 51, please. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. And that's why Christ died. Because in every generation, there will be a tiny minority, and I mean tiny, minority of people that love him, that believe on him, that will worship him, that will travel around preaching the gospel, trying to get people saved, honouring him. If just 100 people every week get saved around the the entire world, and it's probably more than that, but let's say 1,000 people get saved every week around the entire world since the beginning of the church until the end of the Great Tribulation, tens of millions of people compared to the vast majority rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and as a result dying in their sins and going to hell. Judas saw it all, he was privileged to it all, And yet, his heart was obviously never right with the Lord. He died an unsaved person and tragically would find himself in hell forever. Those verses from Luke's Gospel, which we looked at today, make it very clear. And they were, uh, they are an abridged batch of verses. I have more actually, but we're out of time. Those verses deal with the reality of suicide, treachery, and also denial. It all links in together with the innate depravity of man. So treachery, Judas and suicide, and like we've been saying over the last little while, if you think of the term Judas Iscariot, you know that uh, we are referring to somebody very infamous. Some people have suggested that Judas was an alien. Some people have suggested that Judas was a shapeshifter. Some people believe that uh, Judas is tied in with the X-Files. A lot of strange beliefs. Of course, most people are anti-scriptural, are from a non-Christian background, so what would you expect? I was thinking about Madeleine Murray O'Hare not uh, very long ago, and I was thinking about some of the awful things that she would come out with. She had a great hatred for the Lord. She made a lot of money uh, against the Lord. She was responsible for peddling a lot of hate material. Let's call it what it was. It was hate material, and she made money out of it, and one day, To her shock, one of her ex-employees kidnapped her and her husband and her daughter, excuse me, granddaughter and her son. So four members of the Madeleine O'Hare, Madeleine Murray O'Hare family were kidnapped by a disgruntled employee, ex-employee, who just happened to be a criminal. But she knew that. You see, as atheists, they have no morals, they have no principles. As an atheist, she made it up as she went along. But she crossed this guy, not realising it. And once she crossed this guy, he decided to get back at her, and he kidnapped her. And for the next two or three weeks, she was held, along with her family, 
and that was pretty bad. The family were tortured. Her granddaughter was raped. Her husband was forced to crisscross around America, and uh, with the crisscrossing around America, money was moved from account to account. She allowed money to be transferred. Uh, a lot of money came from Russia to fund her organization. She never thought in a million years that this ex-employee would decide to kidnap her and her granddaughter and her son and also her husband. But to cut a long story short, they were all murdered. All had their throats cut. The granddaughter was raped, like I say, and body parts were spread all over the place. And to this day, some 30 years later, most of the parts had never been found. And I asked the question, was it worth it, Madeline? Was it worth it? Think of Joan Rivers, that infamous woman, born a Jew and was a very successful uh, radio and television personality. She had a great hatred for the Lord. She blasphemed the Lord. She absolutely detested him. Of course, you know what happened. She went for a routine inspection and she was seen by a doctor. And to her shock, uh, during an operation, it was bodged. Uh, she died. It wasn't expected. And people said at the time that she was killed by Obama. She was very critical of Obama. In fact, she blew the whistle on Michelle Obama. And she said that uh, Barack Obama was a homosexual. And of course, she was on the left, so it was difficult for those on the left to attack her. These people are all traitors in different ways. And of course, Madeline was an atheist, so we know where we stand with her. Uh, Joan was a Jew, so we know we stand with her. But nonetheless, they sold out, they attacked the Lord Jesus Christ in different ways. Joan was a Jew, Jesus was a Jew. Madeline came from a Christian country which gave her all that she had. She turned her back on America, she became a traitor, and like I say, uh, paid the price. On top of that, money was coming in from Russia. And in America, if you work for foreign governments, directly or indirectly, that's treachery. Not long ago, if you sold out your country, you were put to death. We've spoken about McLean, uh, Philby, and Burgess, three infamous Brits. It's not just them. There have been other Brits over the years that have sold out their country and have got away with it. And of course, when you sell out your country, people die. We had the Salisbury incident uh, last month, month before last, I should say. A man and his daughter were almost murdered on the streets of England. But by the grace of God, they survived. But for a while, it was touch and go. Go to John chapter 1. So when we think of Judas Iscariot, we think of infamy. We think of the ultimate traitor. The devil, of course, is the number one traitor. What the devil saw, we will never know. What Judas saw, we will never know. And yet, in spite of that, when push came to shove, such people turned their backs on our great God, John chapter 1, John chapter 1, look at verse 43 please. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me, follow thou me, that's how John's gospel would end, concerning Peter, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody said to one of the brothers uh, yesterday, uh, what church do you represent? And the brother very wisely said, Jesus Christ. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here to push the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not here to push a church. We don't push our ministry. We have nothing to offer anyone. We're just representatives. We are ambassadors for our blessed Savior. 44. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found this great man, and of course, you know that Jesus Christ has two parts, son of God, son of man, or son of Joseph, son of David. And here, son of Joseph will denote his physical sufferings, Isaiah 53, whereas son of David, also found over in uh, Psalm uh, 22 
and the book of Zechariah will denote the second advent. 46. And Nathanael saith unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Can you really trust the King James Bible, that old archaic book? It's no good. Today we went to Scotland's last final great bookshop, run by a brother and sister in their 90s. And the brother is sick, he's in hospital. And we spoke to his sister, and she said that most of the Christian publishing houses are trying to uh, earmark out the AV, are no longer promoting the AV, are deliberately uh, causing the AV to go out of circulation, quite honestly. They don't promote it anymore. They are pushing the AV, excuse me, they are pushing the ESV, they are pushing the ESV, they are pushing the NIV, they are pushing the New King James, they're pushing every other book apart from the King James. And she mentioned uh, Thomas Nelson, who incidentally was a Roman Catholic. And she said, well, that's what they're doing. And she mentioned Zondervan, who I think is owned or is owned by Rupert Murdoch, pushing the NIV, which was partly produced thanks to a lesbian woman. So we're not surprised. We're not surprised. And this woman up in age, around 92, 93, uh, said that um, Edinburgh is dead. And we can testify to that. I would say Scotland is dead. But by the grace of God... We've been able to crisscross this very beautiful city, very beautiful country, I should say. Mm. And we'll have a count up of tracks at the end of today. And maybe we can suggest 2,000 have been given out. Maybe that's a bit too many. Maybe 1,000, maybe 900. I don't know. We'll come back later and try and put a figure on it. But people saw the banner. People have been spoken to. So the word of God has gone out. And when we leave uh, Scotland tomorrow, we can say for sure that uh, things are better than they were before we arrived. 47. Jesus saw Nathanael come unto him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. That would have been nice if he said that about Judas. That would have been nice if he said that about Madeline Murray O'Hare. That would have been nice if he said that about Joan Rivers. That would have been nice if he said that about some of the awful monsters and tyrants over the last 100 plus years. And yet most people live or die as they lived, lost. This is the tragedy. You may find someone who is on a roll for a period of time and yet die in their sins and go to hell. We've spoken about Sylvester Stallone, and during his dark days, he had to sell his beloved dog for $250. He was starving. He had a young wife and a child, and his beloved dog was sold for $250 or thereabouts. And once he got his first check, uh, when he sold the rights to Rocky One, he paid $5,000 to buy the dog back. And I bet for a period of time, old Sly, as he's known, Sly Stallone, thought, my life is all over. I'm 34, 35. I've got a kid. I can't provide for my kid. I can't provide for my wife. I'm a failure. He must have had some very dark times. He was cleaning out um, cubby holes. He was cleaning out uh, cages at the zoo, like I say, sleeping in phone boxes or phone booths, as they are referred to in America. And yet for him, the best was yet to come. Look at verse 48, please. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under fig tree, I saw thee. So 47, this great man, without guile, without deceit. I'm not sure he could say that about me in and of myself, but he could say that about Nathanael. It's a wonderful thing for the king of the Jews to say that about a man, a Jew. And Nathanael quite rightly is shocked. How do you know me? And he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. He sees everything. He understands everything. He can relate to what we go through on a daily basis. We were speaking to a couple, like I say today, or a sister 
in a Scotland uh, bookshop, the last of that kind. And she told us that her ageing brother has been in hospital for five months. And I thought to myself, I can't, I can't relate to that. I can't, I can't understand it. I can't appreciate what that poor man must be going through. And I said this, and I'll say it on tape now. That brother is doing prison time. And I say that because he is a godly man. Uh, he's been serving the Lord for 90 years. His mother was a missionary to Israel, and his sister and this brother have served the Lord all of their lives, never married, are running this old shop in Scotland. And for the first time, may I suggest, for the first time in this elderly man's life, he's been in the world. He's been in a hospital ward for five months. He has to listen to unsaved people speaking about their sex lives, their personal lives, talking all night, planning their holidays. And what was the third one we were told? Sex over time, how much money can we make? The National Health Service, as we all know, is at breaking point. Nurses are working double shifts, but don't worry, they're making good money. And if you are a typical Christian man or a typical Christian woman, you have to listen to this dross, this filth, 24-7. And if it was me, I'd be on the verge of suicide. But no doubt the Lord is holding him up. Look at verse 49, please. Nathaniel answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, Thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. I love that. You are the rabbi, you are the rabbi of rabbis, the teacher of teachers, and you are the Son of God. This man would affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every so often we speak to people from cults, false religions, and they like to demote the Lord Jesus Christ, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They won't give him the glory that he is owed. They bust him down to just a good old man, like the Muslims. Or the Catholics come along and they eat him every time they break bread. So much nonsense, so much heresy out there. And yet you won't hear anyone speak against it. You won't hear anyone that has any kind of authority call out such uh, heretics. 50. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree. Believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And yet Judas was indifferent to this. He thought this Nathaniel... This great rabbi, or this great Jewish man, I should say, a godly Jewish man being commended by the rabbi of all rabbis. And of course, he would never say that about Judas. And it was like water for duck's back. Didn't touch him. During Madeline Murray O'Hare's uh, dark days and at the top of her career, she would debate pretty much every Christian scholar that there was in America. And I remember listening to a radio uh, recording that she did with Walter Martin back in the 1960s. And Walter Martin, who is long dead, and I appreciate a lot of what he preached, although not everything, I have issues with some of his theology, was on a radio panel with Madeline. And I'll never forget what she said, and forgive me if this offends anybody, but she said this, she said, I wouldn't uh, lick the dust, or I wouldn't wipe the shoes, I wouldn't clean the feet of Jesus Christ, I would wipe my feet all over him. And she said some pretty more crude things, which escaped me, which is probably just as well. And... There was absolute silence in the audience because back in the 1960s, America was still Christian, still godly, still had a level of reverence. The Bible hadn't yet been taken out of the schools. And I thought, this wicked, awful woman, she's come from a very privileged background. She wasn't a poor working-class woman working in 7-Eleven. She came from a privileged background. She was a well-to-do woman living in a decent part of America, and yet such hatred, such contempt for the Lord. You might think that had she come from a third world country, she may have had a reason to feel that way, but she didn't. She was very privileged, and she spoke about the Lord with such contempt. And there was, I think it was a Catholic on this 
panel, or maybe in a Catholic radio host, and even he was taken back with the uh, ferocious tone from her tongue, such wickedness. Was it worth it, Madeline? Was it worth it? You've been dead for 45 years. Her whole family died with her. They're all in hell now. And yet someone said that her son got saved. I think that's correct. In fact, I think one of her sons is a Baptist minister from memory. So something good came out of a bad family. Look at the price. Madeline dies. Her husband dies. Her son dies. Her granddaughter dies. Four members of the same family had their throats cut because of Madeline's hatred towards the Lord. Was it worth it? Was it worth it, Judas? You've been dead for 2,000 years. You're currently burning in hell. Acts chapter 1 says he went to his place. Was it worth it? Was it worth it, Joan Rivers? You made a lot of money over the years. You had a lot of uh, work done in your face. You had your teeth uh, whitened. You had your hair done. You made a lot of money. She was on TV all the time, on radio all of the time. And when Jesus Christ was mentioned, she used letters. She used, she used uh, terms, which I can't even mention. I wouldn't even put it on camera or on tape. I wouldn't even drop to her level. I wouldn't even think about repeating some of the awful things that she said. And like I say, one day she went in for a checkup, expecting to walk out, and they bodged the operation. And like I say, she died. Look at verse 51, please. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So he has commended the faith of Nathaniel. He is rewarding the faith of Nathaniel. And if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, he will do the same for you. But listen to me. If you hate him, if you have contempt for him, if that becomes a perpetual hatred for him, and if you go around trying to attack him, if you go around trying to destroy people's faith in him, if you are what we call a fundamentalist atheist, a radical atheist, and perhaps you are part of uh, a group of people that are undermining people's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, like Megan Phelps, uh, Megan, Megan Phelps, watch out. We've already spoken about the young boy from Singapore. He went from Singapore to America, and he was being interviewed by Jesse Lee Peterson, a conservative black commentator, Christian in America, very respectful, and I like Jesse a lot, but his theology stinks. And this young Singaporean boy flew from Singapore to America to get away from the government in Singapore. But he said this, he said to Jesse, um, I came from a Christian background. He meant a Catholic background. His parents are Catholics. They seem nice people, by the way, his parents, and what he was saying about his parents. Singapore is a very conservative, upright uh, country, unlike Britain, which has gone to the dogs. And he said this, he said, I was on YouTube some years ago, and I, ca I came across the amazing atheist. Now, I know this guy, the amazing atheist. He's an American punk. He's about 30 years of age, has an awful attitude, and he has ruined this Singaporean child. He's ruined him. He's put atheism into this boy's mind. And people like this so-called amazing atheist or Thunderfoot have destroyed probably thousands of people. Like Megan, although she wasn't a child, she's around 31. She's now gone off the rails. She's uh, an atheist. She married an atheist. She's been radicalized, you see. These people have an agenda. And Megan was uh, radicalized. This Singaporean boy has been radicalized. And he's sitting on Jesse's uh, sofa in Los Angeles, speaking about this and that, like it's no big deal. And those people will answer for that one day. John chapter 3, John chapter 3, let's keep moving on. Look at verse 13, please. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, can you match that? Can anybody match that? Anybody listening to this recording, can you match that? Can your God match that? Never mind Muhammad going up to paradise on a white horse. Can you match that? Can your God or your guru your Pope or Popess, Prophet, Prophetess, anyone who you associate yourselves with, 
Can your person match this? Again, no man, no woman hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, present tense. What that is saying is that he went up to heaven by his own power, and he came back down to earth by his own power. Never mind Enoch and Elijah, they were raptured by the Lord. This is Jesus Christ going up by his own power and coming back down by his own power. No man can take my life. I have power to take my life, lay it down and take it up again. He would say on the cross, it is finished, it is done. And he bows his head and he yields up the spirit. And that's power. That's power. A lot of talk about these stealth bombers. A lot of talk about the aircraft carriers. In fact, just two days ago, we were en route to Perth and we drove via Glasgow. And I could see the new British aircraft carrier, the Prince of Wales, a very impressive ship. They say it's the most advanced uh, aircraft carrier in the world. It may be smaller than the American carriers, but apparently the technology on there is far superior to the American technology. And it's been designed in a way that six men can do the work of a hundred. And I saw a documentary two weeks ago before we came to Scotland about the Queen Elizabeth, the sister ship of the Prince of Wales. Very impressed. I was so impressed with the technology that they are using. Never mind the fixed-wing aircraft, which are the most advanced in the world. Never mind the Marines on board, which are the most advanced and well-trained in the world. That ship is pretty smart. And Britain, quite rightly, is very proud of this new aircraft carrier. But that's nothing. That's good stuff compared to this. That aircraft carrier, at most, will last 50 years. Jesus Christ is eternal. He's eternal. No beginning, no end. Look at verse 14, please. And as Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the Lord takes the devil, and when the devil falls, and when the devil fell, he says to himself this, I'm going to use this serpent for my own purpose. I use him to afflict the wicked. I use him to afflict the good. I use him to humble the saved. I will use him to destroy the wicked. And I have a purpose for the devil. Now, he doesn't always know this. The devil's a pretty smart angel or cherub, to be precise, but he is limited as to what he understands. He looked at Jesus Christ for three and a half years. He couldn't quite work out what was going on towards the end with the lead up to Jerusalem. It says how the apostles were briefed about his death on the cross, how wicked sinners like the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders were about to crucify him, thanks to Judas Iscariot. And many times he spoke in parables because the devil was never far off listening. He saw the wise men go up to Jerusalem. He saw the shepherds visit the newborn uh, babe in the stable. He would see Isaiah writing his, uh, his, uh, his book. He would see Ezekiel writing about the first and second coming. He would see uh, Jeremiah writing his book about the suffering saviour, the weeping prophet they called Jeremiah, and of course Jesus and Jeremiah are both very typical. He would see all those things back in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, he would see the children of Israel going to the wilderness, he would see the good and the great. He had no idea, for the most part, what was going on. And he would say to the Lord, if Job really loves you, just touch his skin and he'll curse you to your face. And that thing ran for 42 months, was it? I think 42 months or 42 days. There are 42 chapters in the book of Job, and of course you know that 42 chapters in the book of Job is a picture of the Great Tribulation, 42 months. And Job was being tossed to and fro, his buddies went to him, it says for seven days, they sat down, no one said anything, of course you know seven days are seven years. But that could just be a coincidence, maybe I'm stretching the scriptures, I don't, I don't know. But the devil watched all this stuff, and he said to himself, what's going on here? How could, this, how could this be possible? Why has the Son of God come down to earth? Why is he living in Israel? Why is he uh, submitting himself to the Roman 
leaders, they are pagans. Why is he going through all of this? What's the purpose of this? He's trying to work it all out. He's read Isaiah 53. He, he saw Isaiah right, Isaiah 53. He saw Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. He saw it all, and yet he was indifferent. He couldn't quite comprehend it. He was always trying to get behind it, but the Lord kept it from him. And the Lord said to himself, one day, out at a devil, I will destroy him. But before I destroy him, I will use him to punish wicked people. Because wicked people love the devil. On our route back from Glasgow today, we saw three plates, two car plates, one motorbike plate, number plate. I'm not sure what they call it in America. Is it a tag, tag, license plate in America? They call it a license plate. We call it a number plate here. We saw three license plates with 666, 666. People love the devil. But I'll tell you something, he doesn't love you. He hates you. Look at verse 20, please, from John chapter 3. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. We've seen that for many years. I've seen it for 16 years, Patrick, for probably 18 years. And many times our own friends and family turn from the light. They cleave to the darkness. They love the darkness more than the light. And they destroy their parents' hearts. They become separated. They become indifferent, uh, aloof from their parents. They go the way of the world. But if your kids are saved, they will always be saved. You may lose them for a period of time, but they'll come back to you if they're saved. 21, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So again, Judas is in the Lord's mind. He knows that Judas is in the background. Judas is a personification of unsaved people. He's a personification of unbelieving Israel. And I have to say this because Israel as a nation is beloved. Anybody who touches Israel will be destroyed. They went back to the land in 1948 in unbelief. They've been attacked I think three times directly by the Muslims. And every time they've been attacked by the Muslims, they've just whipped the Muslims. 1948, they go back into the land. In fact, 1946, 47, leading up to 48, they go back into the land. They have been trained up by uh, General Wingate, a great British general who was a Bible believer from the Brethren background. And General Wingate, who my grandfather fought with, was a great British uh, tactician. He taught the Jews how to defend themselves. And when the Muslims attempted to take on the Jews in 1948, they got whipped. They were using weapons from the First World War. They weren't equipped to take on 200 million Muslims. But the Lord wasn't going to put them back in the land to be overrun by sons of Muhammad. They've been protected time after time after time after time. They may be back in unbelief. They may be responsible for wickedness, sinfulness. They may be tied in with the Illuminati, the Rothschilds. That's all immaterial. God will take a section of Jews. He will save that section, the 144,000, and they will mobilize. They will run to and fro throughout the world, and people will get saved as a result of the Lord using them. So again, these verses are dealing with Judas, who represents unbelieving Israel, and also who represents wickedness. Go to John chapter 6. Let's keep moving, please. John chapter 6. So the subject, again, is treachery, Judas, and suicide. And sometimes people hit a rock bottom. They can't go any further. And if they hit a rock bottom, might be saved, might be unsaved. They're going to have some difficult times. Certain parts of the UK are currently uh, experiencing a one-parent family. Apparently 80% of primary schools have less than three male teachers. So one more time, certain parts of the UK, three-fourths of families are led by one parent. 80% of primary schools have less than three male teachers. Most primary schools in the UK are run by women. And boys are growing up in schools run by women. Nothing wrong with women. Don't misunderstand me. I'm no misogynist. 
My point is simply this, that boys need their mothers and their fathers. One million UK children are being raised without a father. They're more likely to have a television in their room than a father. 75% of single parents... Excuse me, there are 75% of single parents in Sheffield alone. These kids are going to grow up in single-parent families. They're going to be raised by their mothers. Their mothers will meet new boyfriends. The boyfriends will move in. And away it goes all over again. I can think of one particular woman. She's got four sons by four different men. You say, why did she, why did she do that? Because she gets welfare. I can think of many families. I can think of one Christian family, two parents, three children, never worked, living off welfare. And they're pretty comfortable with that. And I was told by this person, this person's father, who's also a Christian, that such and such couldn't uh, make the money that is needed to pay for that nice big house that he has, if he was working. But we won't get into that. John chapter 6, John chapter 6, look at verse 53, please. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now, of course, this is symbolic. Only a moron would read these verses and force them to be taken literally. And unfortunately, the Catholic Church does just that. But of course, they pick and choose what they want. Officially, they will condemn same-sex marriage, but unofficially, they will marry same-sex couples. Officially, they are against abortion, but unofficially, they have shares in pharmaceutical companies that produce the contraceptive pill. I wish people could wake up. In fact, just yesterday, we spoke to an American missionary in Perth, who's currently working in Perth. She is from Arizona, seemed a very decent woman, very uh, well-to-do person. And Patrick was speaking to her about the Jesuit telescope uh, range that they have in Arizona called Lucifer. She had no idea what he was talking about. And I thought, you must be about 30-ish. You're living here in the UK. You've come from a church in Arizona. And Jesuits, mm, are they a football team? She had no idea who they were, or John McCain. But more worryingly, she had no idea about this telescope in Arizona, just go online, check it out for yourself. A lot of ignorance out there. Now, I'm not saying she has to know about all of these things, but it does help. It does help if you are a people person trying to reach out to unsaved people. Look at verse 54, if you will. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You've got everlasting life when you drink of his blood, eat of his flesh. Now, of course, we understand this to be partly done through the breaking of bread, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But we know this also feeds back into his atonement. The Jews would have to put him to death, and he will die. The Gentiles would have to put him to death, and they will put him to death. But you have to put your faith in that in order to be saved. And I wonder what Judas must have made of this. 55. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. That's a great verse for the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I wonder... What Judas thought of that. Jump down to verse 60, please. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Well, of course, it's not for them. Back to parables again. Symbolic talking, symbolic dialogue, symbolic language, because the devil is listening, Judas is listening, and unbelieving Israel are listening. This is for your, your ears only. Or as the James Bond film would say, Eyes only, your eyes only. 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What? And if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. It is a spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirits and they are life. He's made it about as clear as he can that this is symbolic language. The Spirit, the Holy Ghost, will quicken you, make you alive, regenerate you. 
The flesh profits nothing. Your works profit nothing. We can't do anything more than what we have to do. I can't be any more justified than I already am. One of our trips today was to go to a town or a slight, uh, small square, I should say, a square outside of Glasgow city centre where Madeline Smith, the infamous uh, Glaswegian woman, and you can Google her for more information, found herself on court in Glasgow over 100 years ago for poisoning her lover. And that court case made history because she was the first person, I believe, in Scotland to be found not guilty, not guilty, but not proven. Let me just put this into context, if I may. In the UK and most countries, you're either found guilty or not guilty. But in Scotland, and we believe this is the only country in the world, the term, there's a third option, and it is not proven, which means that the prosecution haven't made their case. And Madeleine Smith, from another very privileged background, like Madeleine Murray O'Hare, another well-to-do people, murdered her boyfriend, her lover, poisoned him, and they couldn't prove it. And she walked free, went to New York, got involved with the suffragette movements, and we've already spoken about them. Married, lived a good old life, and as they say, she beat the rap. But your works can't save you. Nothing you do can save you. And here the Lord is making it very clear that you are saved by being regenerated, which, of course, is down to the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 66, please. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him, but not Judas. That old devil is going to hang in there. He's going to wait to see what will come his way. He's like a dog with a bone. He knows that something is on the boil. The devil knew something was on the boil. The devil could see how David and Solomon and Moses and Aaron would handle different situations. And time after time, he probably thought to himself, why does God even bother with these people? They're worshipping their own gods. Look at Manasseh putting his kids with the fire. Look at David, all the women. Look at Solomon worshipping multiple gods. Why does he even bother? Well, because one day the Messiah is going to come and he will die for our sins and he'll get himself all the glory then that he wants. Look at verse 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Is it time for you to disappear? Have I said something that is going to offend you? He's almost given them a license to go the way of such people. 68. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. I love that. Good old Peter. Yes, he would mess up many times, but many times he came through for the Lord. John, we've already seen, had a temper problem, and he wanted to call fire down from heaven like Elijah would do. But John came through for the Lord. He took care of the Lord's mother. And here, Peter, you have the words of eternal life. In fact, you are the living word of God. And we believe, verse 69, and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I love that as well. Matthew chapter 16 is a cross-reference to this. And he says to Peter, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this unto you, but the Father which is in heaven. And he gives Peter a great blessing as a result of Peter affirming his faith in Christ. But why couldn't Judas have said that? Why couldn't Judas have said, you are the son of the living God. We've seen you working. We've seen how you operate. We know you really love people. You spend time with people. Why did the Jews reject Christ? I can't think of anybody else who ever comes anywhere near Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, when Israel was uh, put together back in 1948, their leaders were mainly Marxists. Marxist, atheist, communist. This is a problem. And I know that David Hocking tried to witness to Begin before he died, Israel's first prime minister, only to be uh, shunned and made clear that they wouldn't receive, he wouldn't receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, if you speak to people about conspiracies and the New World Order and the Illuminati, they say the same old thing, it's the Jews. 
They blame the Jews. They blame the Jews for everything that goes wrong. Going back to the wandering Jew, going back to let his blood be on us and on our children. And Jesus said, fine, if that's what you want, you can have that. I will destroy your temple. You'll go from A to B. Spain will expel you. Britain will expel you. Most countries around Europe will expel you. And yet Oliver Cromwell comes along. And Oliver Cromwell says, let's bring the Jews back to England. And they do. And Sigmund Freud would name one of his sons after Oliver Cromwell because Oliver Cromwell was pro the Jews. And, of course, if you are pro the Jews, Jehovah is pro you. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. A devil. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Going back to what I said at the beginning, was he an alien? Was he responsible, or could he shift shape? Is he connected to the X-Files? And, of course, the answer to those questions would be no. One of you is a devil. Was he born a human, or was he born a devil? I'm going to suggest this. He was born a human. He was a human. But somewhere along the line, he went wrong. We call that bad blood. One of you is a devil, not the devil. One of you is a devil. They say that she's a devil. He's a devil. He has a devil in him. I met a guy today. He was a real devil. It's a figure of speech. Maybe we've all thought that about different people over the years. I know I have. I don't literally mean that he or she or this or that person is an actual devil. It's used to, to, to denote wickedness, flawed, a flawed nature, one's innate depravity. 71, he spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Son of Simon, save our souls. S-O-S, maybe nothing. Go to chapter 8, please. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, look at verse 44, please. Ye of your father the devil... And the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar, and the father of it. That is devastating. And this will be aimed at unbelieving Israel, and indirectly aimed at Judas Iscariot. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. So you are saved by believing, and you are damned by not believing. Look at verse 46, I love this. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, I wouldn't say about myself. I wouldn't be stupid enough to say to our family and friends listening to this recording, who wants to challenge me or who wants to find fault in me? I mean, within two seconds, you'd find fault in me. And I would say, I'm guilty, and I have to accept that. But you couldn't say that about Jesus Christ. But you could say it about Judas Iscariot. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. So Judas was obviously never of God. Madeline Murray O'Hare was clearly never of God. Joan Rivers was clearly never of God. Hence why they rejected, and not just rejected Jesus Christ, but they hated him. If I went on television today, and if I said stuff that Madeline said back in the 1960s about Muhammad, or anybody else, I'd be booted off the radio show or the television channel, going back to Jesse Lee Peterson having his microphone cut off this morning. Shameful behavior. This isn't Soviet Russia. This isn't China. Can't we agree to disagree? Can't we have a grown-up debate? And the answer, of course, is no. You can't have a grown-up debate. There's a, there is uh, an agenda. There's a narrative, you see. You have to fit in. You have to do what you were told. Going back to George Orwell's state, of course. Look at verse uh, 48, please. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan? And hast a devil? How dare they say that? How dare they say that about our Saviour? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honour my Father, 
and ye do dishonor me. Again, a devil, going back to Judas was a devil. Are you a Samaritan, like a half-breed, or mixed race, as we would say today? Do you have a devil? How dare you say that? And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Again, these are wonderful verses being recorded time after time to, number one, get people saved. Number two, to hold people up. And number three, to allow people to be born again. Uh, John chapter 10, please. John chapter 10, look at verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber, like Judas Iscariot, of course. This will also feed into the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast, which we haven't got time to look at today. Jump over to verse 11, please, from John chapter 10. Verse 11 from John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Atonement. But he that is an hireling, and not the shepherd, his own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. This goes back to Deuteronomy, when Moses said, when I have gone, enemies are going to come from within. Paul would tell you the same from Acts chapter 20. Judas was an enemy waiting to pounce. And the devil, of course, was an enemy waiting to pounce. He took most of the angels with him. And we discussed this many times over the last little while. And here the same theme is occurring and being repeated. So you couldn't miss it. You couldn't miss it. It's so important that you don't miss it. Go to chapter 19, please. John chapter 19. And look, if you will, at verse uh, 25. Now they stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene, no Judas, of course. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Could have been Judas. This could have been Judas. But it wasn't. It was John. And like we say, John went on to take care of the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ and got a great blessing indeed. Jump down to verse 38, if you will, from the same chapter. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices as a manner of the Jews is to bury. Could have been Judas. He could have got a blessing here, but it's Nicodemus. 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There lay they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Good old Nicodemus, good old Joseph of Arimathea, he would step forward and allow the Lord to be buried in his unused tomb. Could have been Judas, but Judas didn't want it. Judas, of course, thought he knew best. Go to Acts chapter 1 and I'll close. And as a result, missed out on a great blessing, and as a result, isn't held today. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is the final time. That Judas is mentioned directly in the New Testament. And of course, he'll be mentioned over in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which we haven't got time to look at. But in Acts chapter 1, written by Dr. Luke, quite possibly a close associate of the Lord. Perhaps, may I suggest, one of the 70. And in Acts chapter 1, uh, look, if you will please, at verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said... The number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. He was the guide, he was the culprit, he was the sellout, he was the traitor. 
For he was numbered with us, and had obtained part of the ministry. Yes, he certainly did. Did miracles, he saw everything, he heard pretty much everything, apart from when the Lord spoke in parables. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. So, let's pull these verses together. John's Gospel makes the case that he sells out the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He has a change of heart, but it's too late. The priests say, keep your money, we don't want your money, it's now blood money. That's where the term comes from, blood money, contaminated money. What we will do is use your money to purchase a piece of land. Going back to the term Akeldama or Aseldama from uh, Aramaic. That land, of course, is now contaminated. So therefore, when the earthquake struck, Matthew 27, it says how many uh, people were seen walking around Jerusalem. And you can take a guess as to who those people were. But before the dead came up out of their tombs, an earthquake has struck uh, the proximity of Jerusalem. And once the earthquake has struck when Judas was hanging on the tree obviously the tree has snapped the branches snapped he's fallen down off the tree he's hit the ground hence why all of his insides his uh burst he's burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out there's no contradiction he hangs himself on a tree he dies a curse to death as Absalom would do but Jesus Christ according to Galatians chapter 3 has died a cursed death in our place and therefore, these verses taken together harmonize beautifully. He hangs himself, the earthquake comes, the tree breaks, snaps, is destroyed, the body comes off the tree, hits the ground, and there's blood everywhere. A bit like Jezebel in the Old Testament. Look at verse 19, please. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as the field is called in their proper tongue, Aseldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishop prick let another take. Now, bishop prick, bishop prick, bishop, we know what bishop means. It's a leader, of course. Rick, realm. If you think of the Vatican, they have jurisdiction, they have a realm. Bishop prick. If you think of the Archbishop of Canterbury, he has a realm. He has jurisdiction, being Canterbury. Going back to those traitors in the House of Lords, all 26 of them, or the cardinals in uh, Vatican cities, 300 cardinals that vote during every papal election. Those good old godly men, I don't think, have so much authority, could do so much, could call a news conference and call on people to repent, but they won't, of course. So therefore, this term, bishop prick, could be in reference to Rome, because of the realm, the bishop of Rome. And of course, the bishop of Rome is Antichrist. It could also be the Archbishop of Canterbury, because the Archbishop of Canterbury has a province, he has a realm, he has an area of jurisdiction. And these men are very powerful, don't forget. Just because most people don't go to church in the UK doesn't mean that they're not powerful. I've already spoken about Prime Minister May having uh, contact with the current Archbishop of Canterbury, and apparently he disciples her. So she has his phone number, and he has her phone number. That's still pretty powerful. I haven't got the Prime Minister's phone number. I haven't got the Archbishop's phone number, but she has. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied, campaigned with us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of the resurrection. We need someone to replace Judas. Beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And of course you know that Matthias will come along. And they appointed to Joseph uh, called Barsabas. 
Barsabas, who were surnamed Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. He may go to his own place. The beast comes up from under the sea. And if you are premillennial, if you are pre-tribulational, I would suggest that you have read books that I've read, and you've listened to sermons that I've listened to over the years, and you know that one of the theories that is very popular is how Judas Iscariot, or the spirits of Judas Iscariot, or Judas the man, will be resurrected, and he will indwell the Antichrist. Now, I don't go for that myself, but that's held by many dispensationalists. I go for the uh, belief, I hold to the... uh, hypothesis that the spirit that indwelt Judas, being the devil from Luke 22, is going to one day indwell the Antichrist, and the Antichrist will sell out the Jews, like Judas sold out Jesus. And when Judas sold out Jesus, he sold out the Jews, because Jesus, of course, is Israel. And therefore, Judas fell as a result of his treachery, and one day the spirit of Judas, or the spirit that was inside of Judas, will take over the Antichrist, And when that happens, the Antichrist becomes the son of Satan. Also, Judas is referred to as a son of perdition, which we didn't have time to look at today. Son of perdition. Perdition is a terrible term. Damnation, reprobation, many, many, many roads into hell, many routes into hell, but none out. And we see this every day of the week. We see people mocking our great God and Savior. We see people just being crippled by sin and apostasy and unbelief, taking far too many drugs, living like the devil. We see children being produced by couples, like I say, out of wedlock. You may have a saved mother, an unsaved father, or a saved father, an unsaved mother, but the statistics are just devastating. One million British kids are being raised without a father. One million. Such are more likely to have a television in their room, a computer, an iPhone, iPad, computer games than a father and 75 percent of single parents are found in sheffield alone one third of uk women have an abortion and finally megan merkel and lady diana both would consult psychics and yet both were baptized why don't we hear more about this why don't we hear the archbishop of canterbury calling these people out because the catholics and the anglicans are guilty of betraying a principle and a person the person Christ, and the principle of being born again. Many definitions of treachery. If you think of the IRA, during the bad old days, the IRA were able to bomb Britain for 30, 40 years, thanks to American help. American money was being sent to the IRA from people like Ted Kennedy, people like Gene Kelly, and other well-known Democrats. The IRA were able to buy weapons from Colonel Gaddafi, thanks to American money. Britain was trying to stop it. And America didn't seem particularly interested in stopping it because the Democrats for many years controlled America. And then one day, something very interesting happened. September 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers went down and America got a taste of terrorism. And she didn't like it. And that day, everything changed. George Bush said, that's it. We will never be attacked like this again. Whereas we've had it for decades in Britain. And when those towers went down, I wasn't yet saved. That changed everything. And America said, As of now, we, being America, will stop terrorism as best as we can. And they started to turn the screws on the IRA. 
Sinn Féin, Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness. And Ted Kennedy, this is interesting, Ted Kennedy found his name on the US blacklist, a list of potential uh, dangerous people. I forget what term they use for it. It's like a watch list. And this is Ted Kennedy, brother of the late John F. Kennedy. And he would get on planes on a regular basis. And when he board the planes, hold on, Senator, you can't fly on this plane. And he get his phone, phone up the White House. Is that President Bush or one of his secretaries? I'm being blankety-blank, 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 held at this such-and-such airport. I can't board the blankety-blank, blankety-blank, blankety-blank plane because he had a pretty, you know, pretty awful mouth on him. And every time he phoned up the White House, they had to get onto the FBI or the uh, Homeland Security, that's what they call it, Homeland Security, and say, let him on the plane. It was a continual embarrassing oversight. He got a taste of his own medicine. But Britain said to America for many, many years, would you please stop the money? Would you please stop Democrat money and other people sending money to Northern Ireland to allow Sinn Féin IRA to buy weapons? And if that is able to stop, they can't buy weapons from Libya. And up until 2001, the IRA was still able to buy, thanks to American money. And then, of course, 2011, payback time for Libya. Britain, under David Cameron, ordered the RAF to destroy Colonel Gaddafi. Payback, you see. Britain lost many people during the troubles. I think 3,000 people from 1969 to 1999 died in Ireland as a result of Sinn Féin IRA. And Britain took that very personally. But it all changed, 2001, when America was hit from uh, within and also from without. And from that day forth, it all changed. Also, go back to the Falklands War, when Argentina decided to invade the Falklands. And they were able to do that thanks to one of Britain's closest allies, France. France was sending missiles. Was it intercept missiles? Excuse me, intercept missiles. And those intercept missiles were sinking our ships. I think we lost eight to ten ships in the Falklands. And around that time, there was a guy called Robert Pearl, who was working for the Reagan administration. And his job was to stop France selling more missiles to Argentina in order to save British ships. And Pearl, to his credit, did that on the orders of uh, President Reagan. But we felt betrayed. Britain felt betrayed because France is an ally of Britain. And after a lot of back and forth and a lot of American time and money, those missiles were purchased, uh, confiscated, destroyed, and that was, saw the end of the Falklands War. So, finally, we've looked at a lot over the last few days. We've spoken about traitors in the House of Commons, anti-white people, anti-Christian people, anti-heterosexual people. If you are a white, Christian, heterosexual, your days are numbered. It's as simple as that. We have what's called positive discrimination in the UK. If you want to get a job working for governments, they will discriminate you. They want non-white people. They want ethnic people. They want black people. They want disabled people. They want homosexual people. They want transgender people. They want gay people. They don't want white, Christian, heterosexuals. You're out. You've had your time. Your days are numbered. If you speak against racism, if you speak against sexism, or if you are homophobic or Islamophobic, you do time in jail. It's going to come. It's going to come. There are things you cannot say. And yet, go back to what I said during the last message, the continual annihilation, or the almost entire annihilation of the body of Christ is continuing to just go down and down and down. I spoke about Dr. Michael Brown not uh, giving Shapiro the gospel. Also, Jeff Durbin, 
had uh, Shapiro on his show, and those two men spent 40 minutes speaking about abortion, not the gospel. Now let me ask you this question. Is abortion more important than the gospel? If the gospel is more important than the gospel, excuse me, if the gospel is more important than abortion, why didn't people like Jeff Durbin and, and also Michael Brown preach the gospel to men Shapiro, Ben Shapiro? Why not hold him to account? He's made some pretty negative comments about our saviour, not like Madeline did, don't get me wrong. But nonetheless, why not give him the gospel? Because they're trying to keep him with all sides, not offend anybody. And finally, George Bush, the so-called born-again president, was on the uh, Ellen show. She's a, les- she's a lesbian American TV host, Ellen. And I saw a clip, by chance, just a couple of months ago, of George Bush on her show doing a dance, dancing as he goes into the show. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, wow. What did it say? Birds of a feather flock together. Why not preach the gospel? If you have a message, if you have a platform, why not preach the gospel? They won't preach the gospel because the gospel is an offence. And may I say one last time, they are also indirectly guilty of treachery and indirectly they are in the same or following the same footsteps to some extent as Judas Iscariot. So we have been able to profile Judas Iscariot. We've looked at him as best as we can. This has been a 10-day message condensed into six days. We've looked at most of the verses in, the, in the, uh, the Word of God, which speak about Judas directly and indirectly. I can't really imagine what Judas must be thinking. He's been in hell for 2,000 years. He's been in his own place for 2,000 years. He's had lots of time to think about the last 2,000 years. If he could kill himself again, he probably would, but that's not possible. And also we believe that one of Mrs. Pankhurst's daughters was a saved woman. So something good came out of her movement. I mean, for the record, the suffragettes, like I say, were a terrorist organization. They did blow up uh, properties like the ANC did. And you may say, well, James, the ends justify the means. Yeah, until one of your kids gets blown up, until you lose your father or your mother. And then all of a sudden, it's not the ends justify the means. It's I want justice. I've lost a loved one. And we will close it there on that note. And ask the Lord Jesus Christ to bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.